This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 383. Warren Buffett says diversification is protection against ignorance. I say growth and equity is protection against ignorance in income producing assets because income comes in, income goes out. But if you have an exit and you can make money by exiting, then at least you are not losing money. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with a very cool, different type of show uh, and a very long show here with my good friend and co-host, Mr. David Green. David Green, how's it going, man? It's going great. We just had Mother's Day yesterday. Got to go see my mom and have dinner with her. Had a, a good day. Did you guys celebrate with Heather? No, we don't celebrate Mother's Day. I think it's a, a card a Hallmark factory mm. uh, holiday, and we don't believe in supporting big business. Well, frankly, so. I think mothers get way too much credit <laughs> as it is in society. We are way, way we just cater to them so much, and we're way too appreciative. I know so so much. I mean, what did they really do? I mean, really, like that's exactly what, what I'm is- saying. I mean, do we really need moms at all? I think we'd be fine <laughs> if we didn't have them. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> There's like 12 people who just like are so angry right now because <laughs> they don't read sarcasm. Yes, mom, I love you. Uh, I love everybody who is a mom. You guys guys are are the real MVPs for sure. The real MVPs. But of course, that happened like a week and a half ago after this episode came out. Uh, Because last week, we released an episode we wanted to put out right away with Josiah Smelzer. So Josiah was a good buddy of mine who walked through his journey of the difficulties he went through and how he overcame them on his small, like I would say small because of what we're about to talk about, but on his like single family deals, right? It's single family houses. Today, we're going to do the exact kind of same concept as how is COVID affecting the world? But we're doing a two-part podcast episode with Sam Grooms and Ben Labovich. So Ben's been on the show a number of times before. And Sam, this is his first time. So they actually, we recorded the first half of this just before the whole social distancing thing came down. And we did it like here in my uh, my shed here out in Maui when Sam and, uh, and Ben were visiting. So we talked about what they're doing. We talked about a lot of really, really great topics, things like uh, how to look at equity versus cash flow, uh, some stuff about partnerships, choosing a market, how they manage risk for their big syndication deals, things like that. So we had a great topic. But then, of course, the world's changed in the past couple of months since we recorded that. So here's the deal. Rather than a whole separate episode, we are going to tag on an extra 45 minutes at the end of today's episode. That is a follow-up that we just recorded just a few minutes ago here the day after Mother's Day. and we put them all together. So you can listen to the first half, hear all about their story, their journey, and then you can listen to the second, what they've done since then, what's gone right, what's gone wrong, what's changed in the world of real estate. Really good stuff. We talked about some really high level stuff. You guys might, if you're new to real estate, you might not understand every word we talk about today, both in the first and the second, because uh, you know they're very smart dudes, but just it's very high level. If you have any questions, you can always go to biggerpockets.com slash glossary or jump into the show notes and ask questions there of Ben, of Sam, of us, uh, at biggerpockets.com slash show 383. But now, before we get to the show, the super long episode today, let's get to today's weird tip. Did you know that Bigger Pockets has an official Facebook group? Now, there's been a number of unofficial ones and people like fan groups over the years on Facebook, but we have officially started an official Facebook group officially. 
How's that for being official? And you can get to it by just going to your Facebook page and search for, you know, Bigger Pockets Official. And you should find it there. There's also a group for the Rookie Show. I think there's a group for the Money Show as well. And so, but there's official real estate Facebook group now for Bigger Pockets. So just make sure you type the word official in there and you'll find it. Uh, and we'd love to have you in the group. It's just a great place to connect and talk and chat and ask questions and uh, celebrate your victories. So check it out. Again, go to Facebook, search for Bigger Pockets Official, and you should be able to find it there. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a deal machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think we're pretty much ready to get to today's show. Anything you want to uh, say before we get into it? One David of my Green? favorite parts of this whole before and after or maybe before and during thing that we're doing is that you get to actually hear all the fears and the speculation people had and then fast forward in your time machine two months and see how much of that came true. Yeah. And I love that because we forget about all of the uh, declarations that people made that were really dramatic in one direction or another went like six months later, we don't always look back and see, you know, I guarantee yeah. victory and then they get smashed. And so this yeah. is a pretty cool way of seeing all the fears everyone had, all the concerns, all the speculation, and then zip, zip forward and see what actually happened and seeing how much of that came true. And the more of that you sort of experience as an investor going through this journey, the better of a detector that you'll start to develop for when you should be worried, when you shouldn't be. And more importantly, what you should do to mitigate that risk rather than letting it freeze you into not taking action. So good. So good. Let's bring them in. So with that, let's do it. 
All right. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, gentlemen. Good to have you here. Sam, Ben, what's up, guys? Not much. Beautiful view out here. It's not too bad. I get to stare at Ryan this whole time. Thanks for having us. <laughs> That's what you meant, right? Right. That's what I thought. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we want to go through you as a story today, uh, each of you. Uh, ben, you've been on the show before. <laughs> Ben's been on the show many times before. Sam, this is your first time. And so why don't we start with Ben, get your 30-second story. Ben has an ability to make 30 seconds into 30 minutes, but we're going to get your story. <laughs> and we're going to go to Sam. Ben, go. I got diagnosed with MS when I was in college. I needed to figure something out to make money. I didn't have a lot of cash, so I couldn't invest in dividend stocks. I wasn't smart enough to build a business. So just like any Dumbo, I went into real estate and there you have it. All right. Wow. And you bought a lot. Story. In, you bought a lot in Ohio. For, well, not a lot, well, but yeah, yeah I've been amount. doing it since 2006. Yeah. So you buy stuff. And if you want to listen to Ben's episodes, of course, we'll link to them in the show notes and uh, there's links to all Ben's shows, but you kind of made a, 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 a large change and that you started with the smaller stuff and now you don't even touch the smaller stuff. Correct. And so we'll talk about that today again, a little bit more, but Sam, your story. So how'd you get into this thing? We want a shorter, long version. Let's go a minute long <laughs> version. <laughs> so I was a CPA, worked at Deloitte. I did they're one of the largest financial services companies in the country, or actually in the world. In 2014, I bought a house with my wife. We started renovating the house. I did everything from electrical, uh, the plans, got the permits, and refinanced, pulled out a bunch of money, uh, got rid of my PMI, and decided I loved real estate. So started doing it on that side, started flipping, started investing in multifamily syndications. And then that's when I met Ben and decided... I wanted to sponsor multifamily syndications and the rest is history. That's where we're at today. All right. So I want to start a little bit with the, with the transition from your full-time job and that, that hustle that you had. Uh, so Sam, tell us about like, when did you know it was time to leave your job? Why did you leave the job and kind of walk? Cause a lot of our listeners right now are at that point where they're like, I hate my job or I don't like my job. Maybe they like their job. They just want something different yep. and they want to transition out. So how did you make that transition? Interesting question. So I, right away when I started, I got recruited by a new company right after I bought my house. And I, I figured out in the first month that I could automate a lot of the tasks I was doing. And so I started in the next first six months, I spent with IT every day. I don't even know if I've told Ben this story. I worked with IT every day to automate a lot of the, my tasks and actually half of my day freed up. And so then <laughs> they gave me, a, they gave me a few more tasks, but I don't think fully caught on to that I automated like most of my day. Um, so I actually just started analyzing deals all day, every day. And that's what I, I love doing. I spent most of my time doing that. Um, and that got, let me, allowed me to really learn the market and the local market in uh, Phoenix. And then I would just suspended. I realized that I loved looking forward to that time of my day that I can spend doing that. And I wanted to do something I was more passionate about. And yes, I was making great money um, climbing the corporate ladder, but I wanted to do something I loved. And I, we had just gotten married and my wife and I knew that if we didn't take the leap of faith then that we wouldn't do it once we had kids. So it was a perfect time for us. Um, and we just, we both quit our jobs at this pretty much the same time, about a month apart and started flipping and yeah, never looked back. Like I, I believe most people, not everybody, but a lot of people could probably jump in and flipping houses. David, I'd love to know your thoughts on this too. Cause you flip houses. You're especially getting more into flipping houses, but like flipping houses is not a impossible skill to learn. Doing large multifamily syndication is a pretty difficult skill to learn. Not impossible. Again, I think if people really want it, they'll find a way. And if not, they'll find an excuse, right? To steal a right. Jim Rohn quote. See, David, I gave credit to Jim Rohn there. And, <laughs> but like, 
The what? trademark lawyers have targeted Brandon now, <laughs> and they're circling like hot I have never swoop in. <laughs> no, I've never stole a quote. Jeez, this guy. All right, no, this. Uh, I am curious. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna go David first. Like, I'm curious. What, like, what skill set do you need to quit your job and flip houses? I want to go there first, and then we'll talk about what skill sets you need to do other. So I'll start with you, David. And I know we're not like interviewing you, but I'm controlling the yeah, conversation. Okay. So. If you want to flip houses, it's, it's, it's basically running a pretty simplistic business. Now, when I say simplistic, I don't mean it's easy. I mean, compared to if you were to buy a brick and mortar institution where you have, you know, like 20 employees that you have to manage <clears throat> accounts payable and accounts receivable, you have to be looking at accountants. You have to understand the margins of every single thing you're selling. That's what most businesses are like. And that's very difficult. Like if you wanted to open a shoe store and sold clothing or something, House flipping, there's a lot less variables to go into this thing. There's what am I buying it for? What do I what do I have to do to fix it up? What are my holding costs and what am I selling it for? When there's less inputs, it becomes more simple. But that doesn't mean it's it's easy. It means anyone can do it. And with a business like that, the most important thing is you have to be able to find leads. If you can find deals and you can fill a, a bucket up with a bunch of water, which is your equity, then you can make money flipping houses. You'll make less money than the next guy, right? Like someone like Jay Scott's gonna be super systemized, he's gonna do better than you. But you can still make money if you could get enough equity in that deal. So you have to have the ability to find leads. And often with that comes the ability to negotiate. You have to be able to talk to people and be able to get something under contract and have some skills when it comes to that. Everything else can be hired out. You can hire a contractor to work on your rehabs. You can hire a bookkeeper to, to, to keep the, the books. You can have somebody who actually analyzes it for you. There's Sam's out there who, like Sam just said, I would look forward to that part of the day all the time. I loved it. We all have that one part of what we do that makes us come alive and we love to get in there. Uh, you find people that are good at those things and you can run a house flipping business pretty simplistically compared to what most businesses are like, but you got to be able to find leads. If you're that kind of person that doesn't like to talk to people, doesn't like to put yourself out there, you're afraid of being told no, or you're afraid of having to make you know 99 swings before you make contact on that hundredth one, you're going to hate house flipping. But when you realize that when you do one good one, how much money you can make, it makes sense when you average it all out. That makes sense. Anything else on the end of that? For me, it was just from the analyzing so many deals. You, so you're going to get a ton of deals. If you reach out to every wholesaler in your area and just get on all of their lists, you're going to get more deals than most people can look at. Yeah. So you need to be able to look out really quickly and know if it's a deal or not. So when you get that address and the price that they're asking and their ARV, and really quickly know, I know that area. I know what it's going to cost to take to rehab it. I know what I'm going to be able to sell it for. Is this a good deal? You need to be able to do that in less than a minute. And so just the more you can analyze deals, the faster that'll go. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. All right. So let's talk about how you guys met. So you're doing your own thing. Sam, you're doing your own thing. Ben, you're doing your own thing. Uh, I know Ben, last time you were on the show, you were talking a lot about multifamily syndication uh, and you, you kind of started, you know, entering the space, but now you're like, you're like a syndicator, right? So I want to go through that transition of how that happened. Uh, but first, let's start with how you guys met each other. Because, I mean, you really took off once you found each other, right? Right. All right. So how did that happen? How did you guys? So I'm letting Sam talk. Because yeah, <laughs> he yells at me every time. Because I change. talk all the time, right? <laughs> Prima Donna, the professor. Uh, let's hear it. So as I'm flipping, I started investing in multifamily syndications. All of them were local to Phoenix, all local sponsors. And actually, I'm listening to a webinar that you were putting on, Brandon. And you mentioned a syndication that you're investing in in Arizona. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. I'd, I'd love to find out more about that. So I emailed you and you connected Ben and I. Um, and I should go back and look at that email. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that. I don't remember that, but I, I must have. That's good. Yeah. 
Okay, so you... And for me, it was, it was a very personal decision. You know, okay. you just, you're sitting in Ohio, get all my... You know, and one day you wake up, you look at stuff, at stuff in the mirror, and you say, you know what? I bought a duplex, I bought a triplex, I bought a fourplex, I bought a ten. You know, I just, that cup is overfilled, like on a very personal level, right? It, it was just like, I can't buy another small multifamily. It, it, I'll be, it's, it, it's just not me anymore. And I didn't know what me was at sure. that point. Just like he outgrew his cubicle, I outgrew my well, okay, I have 30 doors, I have 40 doors, you know, hoopa. It, it's just, it, it, was, it was done, I was done. Like, the guy I was, like, looking in the mirror, was not a guy that could tolerate buying another fourplex. Let, let me ask you a question on the note. How much of that was that transition? Because, again, a lot of people listening to the show right now are investors who have 10, 20, 30, 40 units. How much of that transition was because you just wanted something more or did you need something more in terms of, like, financial, like, because like, I'm assuming you would have been fine. Just with no, your you don't need and... more financially. You yes. want more financially. What, so what you made need you do that? Is your manhood, your <laughs> impact on society, yeah. your capacity to deliver a lifestyle to your kids. Those are the things we need. Money is a byproduct of growth. And I was just simply in a place personally where I was done, dude. And that happens in growth every time. Like you, you it's it's a hockey stick. You go up. And then you hit a plateau, and then that right there, you're spinning around looking, who am I now? Like, what's next? Who, who is this guy now, right? And that's the place I was in. And so it's very personal. It, it's, it's really all about growth. It's, none of it is about money. Money is nice, but it's growth. Yeah. What about you, Sam? Why did you make that jump? Like, why not just be satisfied with the flipping or the, sm you know, the smaller stuff you were doing? So I, so I started learning a lot about multifamily, just going to conferences, reading books, um, listening to podcasts. And I noticed that my skill set related a lot more to multifamily and the financial side that's really involved with multifamily. And I loved the real estate side and flipping and taking something and improving it. And now I just do that on a larger scale with multifamily. That's cool. Very cool. You know, I think something about the, your guys' story that I really want to highlight for the listeners is the most successful people that Brandon and I talked to had a career growth trajectory very similar to yours. The newbies always say, okay, tell me every single step I'm supposed to take, all 150 of them. Let me line up my dominoes as perfectly as I can so I never make a mistake. And they spend 17 years trying to do that. And then they realize that real estate has tripled in value and they haven't done anything. And they're in the same place they were. The people who are successful say, I can see the first step. Let me go take it. And then like Ben, they go build up a portfolio of, multi of small multifamily properties. They learn the fundamentals of real estate. They learn how to manage money coming in and out. They learn how to keep books. They learn tenant laws. They just learn the basics. And so there's some confidence. And then they say, yeah, I don't really think I really like doing this anymore. What would I rather do? Then they find something else. And then they go do that. And it ultimately accumulates in you ending up where you should have been because like, this is going to sound cheesy, but your heart kind of guides you, right? I don't like doing this. Sam knows his heart says, I want to be analyzing stuff. When you put an Excel spreadsheet in my hand, I feel like John Wick with a Glock. This is how I like to feel. And he knows that's where he's supposed to be. You don't know that before you start. You don't know what you're going to like, like how you should be doing it. You have to get out there and start doing stuff. And it's okay that you change course. Like the stuff Ben learned doing small multifamily is the same 
fundamentals he's using doing large multifamily is just kind of on steroids now. But that's okay because you have to learn how to do addition before you can learn how to do multiplication. If you wait until I want to learn algebra as the very first form of math that I ever learn, most people will never actually end up learning, learning anything. And so this path of real estate of charging forward, hitting a ceiling, and then picking a new path to go is what your, your path really should look like. Absolutely. And it doesn't have anything to do with real estate. Like people come to bigger pockets thinking that real estate is the answer. Real estate is the tool. Mm. It's just a tool. Absolutely. The answer is in your head. And if it's not there, I can't put it there. Brandon can't put it there. David can't put it there. I mean, it's, it's, you got to see the bigger picture. So once, once you guys got to the point where you realized the bigger picture is multifamily syndication, tell me how you made the switch, what pieces you had to put in place, and then how you chose which market you wanted to invest in. So Ben and I actually, when we first connected and we knew we wanted to partner up, we spent, what, probably six months daily, 12 hours a day, underwriting <laughs> and coming up with our model. Literally. Yeah, yeah. looking at markets. Um, we, looked, we looked at other markets. We went and put offers in other markets, got investment final. Mm -hmm. Um, you guys both lived in Phoenix though, at this point, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We both live in Phoenix. Um, but all this underwriting was on the phone. We were just on the phone. Our wives probably thought we were crazy 12 <laughs> hours a day until eight o'clock at night. <laughs> Sounds like eight years ago, Josh Dorkin and I, it was the same thing every day. It totally. Cause the passion behind it. Yeah, exactly. It didn't have to do with apartments. It didn't have to do with real estate. It was a tool. You were growing, but we weren't passionate about the tool. We were passionate about the growth, getting from point A to point B to the next plateau. But yeah. I think that's where our partnership came into play a whole lot. I mean, you're talking six months of we're all submitting offers, not getting deals. Yep. If you're on your own, you would think a lot of people would just be burnt out and give up at that point. When you have someone every day that you're on the phone with tweaking the model, what, what, let's look at this a little bit differently. Let's go to, to a different market. So just having someone push you and hold you accountable, that, that got us through, I think, that first six months. So maybe before we go into the market the discussion about how you picked finding your market, let's talk about the partnership thing for a minute. Uh, David, I know you do partnerships. I do partnerships. You guys obviously have a partnership. For those listening, what makes a good partnership? What do you think? What do you think made you guys work so well together? And uh, how can other people find a potential partner? I mean, other than just you know emailing me and asking for an uh, introduction. I was just telling him the other day the amount of value he added to my life. Mm -hmm. That was that. I mean, I never considered partnering with anybody before, but the amount of value he added to my life that was that was it. Like cool. yin and the yang. You know? Yeah, to that point, complementary skill sets. I mean, we were the opposite in a lot of respects. Even though we have the same views on real estate, our skill sets are completely separate. And I think that helps us a lot. And we balance each other out. Yeah. I'm the eternal optimist. He's the eternal pessimist. <laughs> yeah, didn't you well, give him a book? Like the, <laughs> yes. tell, us, tell us about the book you got after your first deal. So, so every, after every deal, I get Ben a gift because uh, we go out to dinner. Um, and... I, the very first deal, I got him Chicken Little. His <laughs> <laughs> Ben Sky is always falling. <laughs> but what's great about that, you're 100% right, though. Like the eternal, like the, the, uh, the pessimist and the optimist, I think that actually makes for a really good partnership. Absolutely. Because if you're too far one way, you start making stupid decisions. You got to have somebody that's always like pulling you back, reining in the in, in a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, uh, David, real quick, you and Mario. Which one of you is the pessimist? Which one's the optimist? Or do you feel like you both are one way? On He's the optimist. I'm the pessimist in that relationship. Yeah. Like I, I've, so, I've talked to Brandon about this and I didn't use the optimist pessimist thing. I used the driver and the filter. 
So Brandon is a driver. If you put something in front of him, he will find all the ways that he can make that work. He believes he can make anything work. That's part of why Brandon is successful. Like he just really doesn't think that there's anything he can't do. Not because he's arrogant, but because he will just throw like the guy's been going to jujitsu with zero idea what he's doing he's getting (laughs) throttled and he just keeps going back he's not even asking what do i do he's like if i just keep going i'll just learn it right like he is the personification of the attitude we tell people you should have okay but brandon needs people in his life like sam's and ben's that are what i call the filter so he fills up a funnel with every single opportunity he can possibly find and he says i want to go do all of them the filter picks which one is actually worth pursuing and says you are allowed to go in that direction in this way so he's just like like the police dog that just wants to go and bite at anything that it can. It's just <laughs> all the time. Go, 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 go. Well, it needs a handler that can control it and say, all right, you are allowed to go bite that person. Don't bite David who's right next to us, even though his leg looks really good. You got to find that in a partnership. I'm a firm believer. I think it's Brian that probably plays that role for Open Door Capital. He's going to say, all right, Brandon, I know you love that deal. Here's why it's terrible. I'm not going to let you chase it. Let's go chase this one instead. So, that, But if all you have are filters, they never get anywhere. They sit in a circle talking about doom and gloom and why nothing will ever work and successfully avoiding ever making a mistake, but never making any money at all. I think I'm just got to have both sides. I'm just such an optimist when it comes to open door capital that like it takes an entire team of people to tell me no. Like Ryan, <laughs> Ryan's laughing off, head, off camera right now, nodding. It's like Ryan and Brian, like they have to gang up me. I'm like, no, we're not building houses in Maui, Brandon. That's a terrible idea. I'm like, but we can make so much money doing it. Yeah, they, it, it takes a lot of them. All right. <laughs> so that that's one huge part of the partnerships. How does somebody find that partner? What would you guys recommend if somebody's looking right now saying, I need that other person? Or maybe they're asking, do I need that person? Do you need a partner? Uh, I kind of cover both those things that we can talk about. Well, first, I think absolutely you need a partner. I think everybody is going to go further with a partner. But how to find them? I think that's difficult. I think neither, one of, helpful? Us, neither one of us were actually... <laughs> Uh, right, good show guys um, it's hard neither one of us were actually looking for a partner we just stumbled upon a partner uh-huh. so i would just put yourself out there i mean start look going to conferences networking with people yeah. going to meetups um unless you're interacting with people you're never going to find that person Conference is like BPCon 2020 in new orleans in october in october <laughs> anyway yeah exactly probably sold out by this time but anyway i yeah. think you need to know your own strengths first step one because then you will understand what you are lacking and what you are ultimately looking for. How do you for. do that? How do you know your own strengths? You don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you, you be pretty sharp about what you do. You have to know your strengths. If you don't know your strengths, get the hell out of here. What are you doing here? Yeah, I think just asking it's the question, like, what silly. are my strengths, is like the way you figure out your strengths. If you just don't even think about it, then you're just going to be... If you have to ask yourself a question... <laughs> What are my strengths? You are a dumbass. <laughs> Some things what you I mean just is by, know. by focusing. But, by but putting listen, let me, let me give you an example. So uh, we it. talked about it in liberal arts terms, right? David did and you didn't. Let's talk about the underwriting process because with that, we're kind of like boiling things down to like real actual that we do. Okay. I look at things in the more, I'm a violin player. So I see the imagery. I see the pictures. I've been doing real estate since 2006. I know how people act. I know what they do where their alternator breaks in their car. I know what that call sounds like. I know what the call sounds like when their kid sticks a toy in the flapper in the toilet and it leaks from downstairs. You know, I know what that sounds like. I know how that interaction impacts property. I know how, because I can look at the trailing financials, I know how it impacts the building. I know how that works. Okay. Sam didn't. 
because as smart as he was, he wasn't wise. Because <laughs> wise happens from experience, from being in the trenches. So do you agree? Perspective on stuff, right? So that's a good marriage because I never reported to SEC and I never helped another company, you know, set up a thing with the SEC. So I have no idea, classically speaking, accounting wise or anything else, what that's supposed to look like. All I know is this is what's economic loss. This is why it happens. It, people are people. And I've experienced it for 15 years. And because of that, here's the number we're going to put in the underwriting because it's going to represent that. So I start with that picture and then I boil it down to numbers. He goes straight to numbers. So every time we underwrite a deal, we're doing it together. Like if it's remotely interesting to me, I send it to him and he starts underwriting, vice versa. We underwrite every deal together and we start from the opposite points of view. Like I'm more liberal arts. He's more just straight to the numbers. And what happens is we massage those two things together to arrive at what I think is our competitive advantage because we're able to dial it in more so than either I could by myself or he could by himself. But he is very liberal. Uh, I'm very liberal. He's very like stiff, just numbers. <laughs> so when he says we start from two different places, yes. we actually have separate underwriting. So I oh, have really? one underwriting and he has another. Now we come up with the exact same. If we use the same rent, same unit mix, same CapEx, we come up with the exact same returns, but they're, they're built completely different. And if he, we don't, <laughs> then we, we go to the underwriting and I say, Sam, fix my shit. <laughs> yeah. so, so what you're saying here is like, Ben, you're taking more of a qualitative approach to the real estate side. And Sam, you start from more of a quantitative and you guys meet in the middle and then you, you convince yeah. the other, either convince for or each against, other. Of each other. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and that are. back and forth is hugely helpful because I'm too much of a pessimist <laughs> to capitalize on the opportunity. And he's too much the other way to recognize the risk. Yeah. And, but having those two perspectives married together works for us. Really, really good point. I like that a lot. I think it's similar to what Brandon and I do with ideas. So we'll each have an idea and I'll typically look at it from the perspective of it, how much knowledge are we sharing with people if we do this? How does it fit into the rest of the world that we have? Can I make it efficient? Can it be synergistic? I'm looking at it from that. And then Brandon would just be like, yeah, but would anybody care? <laughs> and I often never even think to ask the question of like, would anybody want this when I'm looking at it? probably more like from Sam's perspective and Brandon's looking at it from like, is there demand for this? Would anybody do any of the stuff that we told them? Would they even have fun or would they like it? Do people want this? And we're both looking at it. Like you guys said, the same thing, same ideas from different angles. And it's only when both of those, it, it passes both of our little internal underwriting systems that we say, yes, this is an idea we should implement it's, for the podcast it, or it, whatever it, we're doing. You know, Sam goes straight to the price per square foot, right? We're looking at an apartment and I'm asking myself, Who's going to be interested in it and why? And so he goes straight to the price per square foot. Where's yeah. that land in the market? I walk into that apartment yeah. and I see an extra piece of countertop, which is almost like a desk in the corner. And I'm going, who wouldn't love this? I don't even care what price per square foot is. So now we have to marry that and figure out the price per square foot because there's there's a, an emotional value in why this apartment is going to be preferable to another apartment in the marketplace. 
So this actually brings up a, a point for a lot of new investors, maybe people who aren't at this level at all of buying apartments, but think like I bought a, a house one time for $45,000. I approached it from the numbers standpoint, the Sam standpoint, we'll call it. And I said, $45,000, it'll rent for $800 a month. That is a hot deal. And all the numbers, I could run the analysis all day long. It worked out perfect. That property cost me on average $200 in lost rent every single month I owned it for eight years. And then I sold it at a, basically a loss or maybe a break even of what I had into it. Why? Because I didn't look at the, the more qualitative of this is a freaking weird house and weird houses attract weird people, right? So like it was a weird house, a strange layout. It was it'd been remodeled for by some guy who's just a, a tinker. And so he just did like weird things everywhere. Which are we talking about weird. a Waldo here? That, what, what are we talking about? Or a pig? This, yeah, it was basically a pig with some lipstick on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I should have approached it from both sides, but I didn't. I got caught up in just one angle. Now, other right. people could have done the opposite. Been like, that house, look, did you see the kitchen? It was beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And then they don't actually run the numbers. They're like, oh, yeah, that deal sucks. So no matter what type of real estate you're going into, whether it's a, your first single family deal or you're trying to buy this 400 unit apartment, you you're selling a product. Somebody's going to want to buy that product in order for you to succeed. I don't care what the numbers are. Yeah. Who is going to be buying that product and why would they choose this product as opposed to the other? And with that, we can get into location. We can get into the scope of renovation and all of that is on the list if we want to talk about it. But it's, it's, a huge, like a huge topic with, it's like a bottomless pit. We yeah. can, we can talk about that. And when you've got millions of investor capital, you have to think about all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a good principle to pull out of this is pick a partner that sees your blind spots, that they look at the world from a different angle as you, you have the same goal, you have the same values, you have the same ethics, you want to get to the same place, you're going the same direction, but they're looking at things from the way you miss and you often look at the th- things from the way that they miss. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's natural. Like what makes a good partnership? Like we don't have to do what David just said. Like we don't have to sit down there and check the, it's just natural. That's the way it happens. And that's why the partnership works so well. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think, uh, I mean, we've talked about this on, on numerous other shows, but this is why Ryan and I have worked so well together. I think it just kind of became a natural, mm-hmm. like, well, he's also so good looking. I, I mean, <laughs> he's a good looking gentleman looking at him all day long. <laughs> no brainer. Uh, let's go back to picking a market because we talked a little bit about that, but you guys ultimately decided on Phoenix. Now we're, this show is not about investing in Phoenix, but I want to know, like what, what drew you to Phoenix and how do you decide in a market? How does somebody listen to this right now, decide where to go and focus or in, in, in invest in? Especially a lot of people listening are in LA and in New York and Seattle. And they're just like, I got to invest somewhere else. Well, they're all coming to Phoenix. They are coming. But that's <laughs> beside the point. I mean, that, that's why the cap rates are four and a half. Okay. You know? So what, how do you decide on a market? But, Maybe. but can I start us off? Yeah. Because it's the same continuation of the same. Here's the liberal arts mm-hmm. and here's the numbers. I moved to Phoenix three years ago. All I have to do is ask myself, why? I want the weather. I want the blue skies. I want the low property taxes. I, lo- I want the low insurance cost for property insurance. I want th- to never see snow as long as I live. I, you know, I want opportunity for my kids. I have those things in Phoenix. Yep. If I like something, and that's really like a good entrepreneurial way of looking at things like how how do you get your ideas well if i want something other people probably want something if i want to be here other people probably want to be here for probably the same reason 
uh, if I want to, you know, figure out how to do something better or faster or more efficient, other people probably do, you know, that kind of perspective on life. Like if it's good for me, it's probably going to be good for other people. So that's my kind of very liberal arts of looking at what's a good market. Well, yeah. it's good for me for reasons X, Y, Z. Therefore, I imagine it would also be good for other people for the same reasons, because we all humans and we all basically want the same thing. And, and th But this is where <clears throat> the whole idea, like you start from the qualitative side, the liberal side. That's right. But if you just made a choice based on that, you might make a horrible decision. So that's why you have to back it up with data, that's which is right. where Sam comes in, right? That's right. You're so welcome, then, ben. that's right. Yeah. So then so, you come in. And so we actually have six factors that we use when considering when to when to decide on a market. Okay. Um, first one, competitive advantage. For most people, this is proximity. Um, but it could be I'm getting deal flow in a certain area, or I know where a new path of progress is headed in this area. Um, yeah. Can you think about some other competitive? Yeah. Well, yeah. I know somebody on the on the city board, and I know regulation yeah. is coming that's going to create opportunity. Probably not on a large scale, like for multifamily, but like if you're going to run a better breakfast and, yeah. and you know that there's regulation coming that's going to limit that or help that, then, you know, you buy an eight bedroom house yep. and you subdivide and put locks on everything, you know, that kind of thing. So I, being local is just an advantage. It is huge, right? And I, was, <clears throat> I tell people a lot that if I was going to invest in another market, like I'm just going to build a small multifamily portfolio again, let's say in another market. I'd probably choose Minnesota. And they're like, well, why Minnesota? I'm like, because that's where my family lives. So my competitive advantage is I have, a, have like, you know, 10 people I right. could call at any moment and be like, hey, can you go check this out? And I grew up there, so I kind of understand yeah, the market. except I know your family. Yeah. Every 10 of them is going to be like, who's this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now he wants to talk to us. <laughs> Mr. Maui. That's yeah. classic, dude. Who are you? Yeah. You want me to do what? <laughs> All right. So besides, but that's, <clears throat> that's the, the competitive advantage is that you either know something about yeah. the market, you have something in there, and being local is like the best competitive Well, advantage. I'll give you a real example. So we're in, we're in Phoenix, and I think IPA just came out with like their study of 2019 rents, and I think Phoenix grew rents by 8.3%. That's one of our numbers. Well, we'll talk about <laughs> that later. But the whole point is, if you are looking at data, like if you're approaching this institutionally, yep. And you are looking at some kind of market data. You know, by the time it's collected, organized, and put before your eyes, that's, you know, six months of common gone. Yeah. And you're about 4% off on trying to figure out where your rents are needing to be in order to underwrite this. So it, it makes it very inefficient, very difficult to be competitive in a, a good market. Yeah. So being local and knowing exactly, hey, here's my competition. I'm just going to hold Sam's hand. We're going to pretend like we're a couple. We're going to go in there and look and see if they have a washer and dryer. For those of you that can't see this video, Sam is a remarkably handsome man. I don't know what it is when I look at you, Sam. But <laughs> Thanks, David. This is what I'm about, saying. Something about I your mean, look. He's my Ryan, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and for those who can't see this video, David, Green, and Sam look identical. You could be confused for the same person. All right, so you look, so number one is that competitive <laughs> advantage. What else do you look for? Number two, diversified economy. Okay. So if you go back to 2006, one in six jobs in Phoenix was construction related, but only one in 14 are now related to construction. So Phoenix is really diversified. We're now in tech, health services, education. That's smart, yeah. Um, so you want a diversified economy. You don't want something that's related on a Navy base or yeah. only. So that Navy base loses funding. I mean, well, or, the, the, or perhaps, and that doesn't mean like, an area that is dependent on the auto industry as the only source of employment for everybody that lives there. Right, right. And it, it doesn't mean that you exactly. can't buy a fourplex and do very well. 
in an area that's not diversified, but you're not taking $20 million of investor capital and buying $50 million of multifamily in a market that, that doesn't have good fundamentals. I think that's a, a great point to make here as we go through these six things. It just doesn't mean that you can't invest in those markets. There are plenty of ways to do it. I mean, I made my living in Grace Harbor, Washington, like the armpit of Washington state. Like that's where I built most of my portfolio wealth. And so it's doable everywhere, but I had the competitive advantage in that market because yep. I knew ever, and people, I love when people come into that market from Seattle and be like, I'm going to start buying some of these properties. I'm like, good luck. Like you, you're competing with me and I live here and I know everything about this market yep. yeah. and like, okay. So competitive advantage, diversified economy. We like, so again, going back to, we're doing large multifamily. We want to buy hundreds of millions of dollars of property. Um, we want a, a population of at least a million people okay it's a population yeah um so that's huge we look at that as well for the mobile home park stuff is you gotta have can i jump in real quick as far as something you guys mentioned that you said you want to be in the path of progress and you want to that is an absolute yes you want to be in the path of progress we typically look at that from uh give me a formula for how i can find the path of progress our brains really like that but the better way to look at it is to understand the principle of a path of progress because Phoenix itself is in a path of progress. <laughs> right. If you consider where I live in California with a massive exodus of everybody who is tired of how expensive everything is. So just you choosing a market that is where people that are sick of California want to go, you're already in a path of progress, right? Like think about like all the water that's like overflowing out of California and it's spilling. And if you look at the states that are around us, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, all of those markets have done super Oregon, they're all doing really good because people are leaving California for what appears to be super cheap prices. Now you guys understand where you live. That doesn't seem cheap, but to other people it does. And I just wanted to kind of highlight, I, I know that's part of what you guys considered when you chose Phoenix is you looked at, okay, all the people from the cold places want to go somewhere warm and all the people from the crazy expensive places or maybe politically kind of weird places want to go somewhere that to them feels normal and is cheap and they're all going to end up in Phoenix. So you don't have our list, but that's actually number four. Ah, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, you're, you're, it, was, it was perfect. Perfect intro. So number four, population mm. growth. Mm. Um, so Phoenix is number one in the country in population growth. Wow. <laughs> that's cool. All right. So number, so we got. Because of growth. all those things you said, David. Yeah. It's, it's number one because people from cold places want to come where it's warm. People from crazy high taxes places want to come where it's lower. People from California, which is just crazy, want to come to some place that's not California, which, yeah. and it's not crazy, you know. So it, it's just an ultimate melting pot, a confluence of all of the things that, all of the reasons. Like Ben moved from Ohio to Phoenix. Well, he had his reasons. What other kind of reasons would people have to move to a place like Phoenix? Well, that's it right there. Yeah. All right, so population, yeah, we they were we were looking at a, a mobile home park collection, a bunch of them out in uh, Illinois, like kind of in rural Illinois, and we decided like when we looked at everything was good, everything was great, like the numbers all felt great, except for population trends was like negative, like you know eight oh, percent yeah. per year, and it was like oh, like people are fleeing this area, mm-hmm. we don't want to get caught with something in an area where population is declining, so we decided not to. So yeah. yeah, population growth huge. That's right. So What's next, uh, job growth. Our jobs coming. Uh, Phoenix is number two in the country in job growth. Um, so you need jobs to be able to support that population, obviously. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, population growth and job growth. It's like if people are coming, they're not coming because there's no job. So yeah. obviously the, the companies are relocating together. the jobs and that's part of the reason people are coming. Yeah. And then so those two lead in <clears throat> to the last one, which is rent growth. 
number six. Um, and that's the one that's really important, especially as multifamily. How much can I grow rents every year? Because I'm if I'm holding this for mm. 10 years yeah. um, and Phoenix is number one in rent growth, obviously, because if you're number one in population growth, number two in job growth, it's pushing up rents. And I, like last year, Phoenix has been about nine percent. Um, the year before that, eight percent. So we're actually still having job growth, whereas a lot of the country is a bit flat or negative in, uh, or in rent, rent growth. growth. And so, I mean, obviously, you don't want to underwrite that pro- projected to continue. Sure. Um, but just to have the extra appreciation in your back pocket. Yeah, that's great. All right, so let, let's review that list real quick. Just read them off all yep. six again, just so people can, if they're taking notes, they can get that and we'll, we'll move on. So number one, competitive advantage. What? Why are you going to be better than someone else in that market? Um, number two, diversified economy, not relying on one industry. Number three, minimum <clears throat> population of a million. Uh, four, population growth. Five, job growth. And six, rent growth. Oh, perfect, perfect. And, and what I want to point out, we mentioned this before, and, and I want to retouch on it is it doesn't mean you can't invest in an area without a million people, right? This worked exactly for your guys' business plan, your strategy. So let's talk about that for a minute. Like what is your plan? What is your strategy? And what, and then I want to go into what have you done in the last few years since partnering? What kind of deals have you got? So it's interesting because most people see multifamily real estate as a cash flow asset. You know, you buy it, you get the rents, you pay the expenses, you get the money in the pocket and that's that. You know, we talked about flipping houses and what I invite people to do is, is conceive. And I learned this from Brian Burke, conceive of multifamily as a long-term flip, Mm, because if you are talking about flipping, what you are necessarily talking about is equity. And when you talk about equity, that's safety, because if you have equity, you can refinance, you can sell, you can get out of a deal. You know, you can, you can, you have options. So I think, you know, part of that growth that happened, Ben going from small multifamily portfolio to syndication is, hey, if Ben is going to take $10 million of people's money, Ben wants to know how the hell he's going to get it back out and what the safety margins are going to be. And all of that comes down to equity. But Ben doesn't want to trust the market growing. It, It helps. You certainly want it to help you, but I don't want to trust the market to do it for me which means I do extreme value adds. I improve this property. And this is where in a environment where rents are scaling up, if you're going to come in and do your renovation and hike the rents, that's the environment in which you can do it. If population is leaving, who is going to be willing to pay you even for a very nice apartment, right? So we look at multifamily as a flip. It may We may come out of it in two years, we may come out of it in three years, in five years, in seven years, in 10 years. But ultimately, after repaired value is where it starts, minus the cost of getting there, minus the profit margin, minus the holding costs that are in multifamily built into the NOI, of course. And that's how much we can afford to pay. But basically, it's a flip. We yeah. think of it as a flip that's removed several years apart. So you're coming in today you're going to exit five years, seven years, 10 years from now, but it's a flip and you are thinking exit. And so you're thinking you're buying value add stuff, which is like a fixer upper. You're trying to buy it. Exactly. So how bad are these properties you're looking at? I mean, you're talking like completely dilapidated hundred percent empty or are you talking? Yeah, no. So, so Phoenix has what? 4% vacancy. 4% vacancy. Okay. And that's across the board. So oh. we're buying 
place is completely full. And in fact, I have to discount that because I can't underwrite 4% vacancy for the next 10 years. Yeah. So I'm actually hurting myself in my underwriting. Mm-hmm. And I have to actually do extra value add to make up for that in a market like Phoenix, which is where our business plan comes in. So we're spending 12000 per unit on the interior of each unit to completely renovate that unit. Uh, new flooring, new cabinets, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, new lighting fixtures, All new plumbing boxes. fixtures. Yep. So everything new in that apartment. Mm-hmm. But we're getting $400 rent bumps. Yeah, yeah. So and and when you're starting at from 600 and going to a thousand, and that's a huge percentage increase. That's huge, and because yeah. the value of a property is based upon how much profit it makes, essentially, when you can bump rents from 600 to a <laughs> thousand, that dramatically increases the value of the property. So and that long flip, like you said, well, you know, and it actually does two things, two separate things, equally important things, maybe one more important than the other. Yes, right now we're getting the rent bump, but tomorrow when there's a down cycle. There's always a flight to quality and down cycle. Yeah. I don't want to be holding resurfaced countertops and refaced drawers like everyone else. I want to have quality because that's hopefully going to give us staying power if we're caught in a down cycle in this property. And reduces our expenses. <clears throat> CapEx because everything is new, right? Yeah. All the faucets are new. These shower heads are new. So, so, it's, so it's, there's a couple of different angles on why we do what we do. But like as an entrepreneur, this is what I want. I want safety. This is what I have to do for safety. What market is going to allow me to do that? Well, I think Phoenix is going to be allowed to do that. So I will do this in Phoenix. Can I do this in Ohio? No. On many different levels, no. The business plan is sound. It still makes sense. But the market won't let you. Yeah. So the thing you do has to match with the, like the market you choose has to match with the business plan, which is why if you live in San Diego, like maybe, maybe house hacking will work really well for you. House hacking kind of works everywhere, but (laughs) maybe like, you know, burr investing isn't going to be a great option there, but you know, house hacking is, or maybe multifamily is not a small multi isn't going to work there because you just can't get cash or single family houses, right? right? Most markets like competitive markets, single family houses, it's hard to get any cash flow. So you have a choice. You can either change your business plan or you can change your market to accommodate your business plan. Mm-hmm. It, the two have to go together. Yep. Uh, again, whether you're trying to buy your very first deal or other, because too many times people are trying to fight for a business plan that just does not work in their market, or they're trying to fight for a market that just, does, you know, they, they have to go together. doesn't reward a particular business it doesn't, plan. Yeah. So and like you can make apartment very nice and spend $12,000 interior and 10 more on the exterior. Yep. But if you're in Ohio and nobody makes any money, <laughs> Who's going to let you raise your rent $400? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, that's been being okay. been, you know? Sure. So. I, but you make a good point there. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, a good example of that. We, we interviewed a guy named Joe Asimo on the podcast recently. Uh, he's in Washington, DC, very expensive market, hard to make single family houses work there, but he's doing it. And if you guys want to learn how go back and check out his episode, it was really good. I can't remember. It was like maybe in the three sixties, um, Joe Asamoa, but it, like he changed his strategy to work in that market. Now that his strategy might not work in Ohio or in Florida or in Phoenix, but it works really well in DC because of some things like how much section eight will rent for there. And he does like a certain level of rehab. And, uh, so speaking of rehab, I want to go back to that. So rehabbing these properties is a tremendous amount of work. Now I have, you know, some mobile home parks and some apartment complexes, especially when I deal with a property manager, I'm like, Hey, property manager, you just go and handle this rehab. Like that's always a disaster. How do you guys overcoming that? Well, originally we were relying on our property managers so that we, they have 20,000 plus units under management. Yeah. We had them doing the renovations, but our renovations are really intensive. Not many value add investors in Phoenix are doing what we're doing with everything new inside. 
They're resurfacing the countertops, yep. painting the cabinets. So now you got to go find a bunch of contractors and that's, uh, that's yeah. hell as well. And, and so we actually took <clears> that over three or four months ago, um, just because the process was a little bit too much for them, especially with how much we're buying last year. Uh, we haven't talked about it, but about almost 400 units last year. Wow. So you guys put on tool belts and started doing the work yourself. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, so we hired a crew. We, we started our own construction company, hired our oh, own wow. crew coordinator. And, and now we run the whole thing from beginning to like end. Like employees. So you yep. actually started a construction. That's yep. awesome. So we have uh, five full-time employees renovating across our properties right now. Wow. Yep. But we're now turning them in a lot, like one third of the time that they were prior. Quality is better and our prices are better. So yeah. Worked out really well. That That's was smart. difficult, but yeah, it's not easy to go start a brand new business. <laughs> well, and, but. and, and there's a critical mass Yeah, the, yeah, you're not doing this for a hundred units. You yep. can't afford to, there, there's just not, there's not enough money. Uh, same as, you know, we always talk about PM, right? How, how much PM do you underwrite? Well, let's just take 10%. But if your building is too small and your income on the building is too small, you could end up paying a lot more than 10%. It's it's all about dollars. So with th- there's a critical mass. There's a number of units. There's a number of magnitude of number of apartments. You know, it's uh you can't hire one guy because then there's no redundancy. Like if you have a hundred units and you hire one guy, like you start a start a construction company, hire one guy. A you can't hire uh, a coordinator, which means now you've bought yourself a job of coordinating this one guy that you hired. And B if he happens to be sick, nothing gets done. Yeah. So you can't have one guy. You got to have two guys, but you can't have two guys for 30 units because you can't afford them. So now you have more units, right? So it's it's all like we grew into it very naturally. And and then it was like no brainer. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, taking it in-house is interesting. I've done both, you know, on the smaller scale, right? Like I hired at once a, a, a gentleman just to run the rehab because I had like five rehabs going at once. I hired one guy, brought him in-house, employee everything, and it was it was fine. But then like the jobs ran out and then I didn't have a use for them anymore. So like that kind of fell apart. Uh, and so that's the danger of going, you know, in house. And maybe it's not a big deal. I've hired temp workers. That was a disaster. But uh, so that's another thing. We hired really good workers. Uh, we got people who had specialties in what they were doing, but then can do everything else as well. But we also paid more than what the market, the prior team, they were paying $13 an hour. You had high turnover, yeah. people just not showing up. Well, we're paying $20 an hour plus health insurance. Yeah. And we're guaranteeing them 40 hours a week. Even if, even if there's some downtime, because it fluctuates. So we get, say you get 10 units on the first of the month and then you would install cabinets and then the ca- countertop vendor needs to come in. They're in there for a little bit. And, and so what are the guys doing? Your guys might have some downtime, but we guarantee you're going to work 40 hours a week. So you get quality people when you can do that. Yeah, that's um, and health insurance. Yeah, yeah, that's like, that's helpful because yeah, you get way better people. And even though you're paying them more dollar per hour, you're paying actually less money because before there were so many people in the overhead of that, of those contractors right. taking a piece. Well, and not only that, I mean, they were taking sometimes 90 days to renovate a unit. That's a yeah. lot of vacancy. So sure, I'll pay someone more, but if I can estimate that I know I'm going to be done in 30 days and that cuts me out a couple thousand dollars of vacancy. Yeah, that's smart. Very smart. All right. So let's go to where you're at today. I mean, so what have you guys done now since being partners? What have you guys bought and what have you done? Um, so in the last, what has it been? 18 months now since yeah. we bought almost 18 months, Seven, 17. 17 months, we bought 500 units. Wow. 50 million of acquisitions. We raised about 20 million. Wow. Yeah. And that's spread across. Just four a properties. walk in the park. <laughs> yeah. Easy stuff. Walk in the park. Kuzianski. Yeah. And how do you, how do you find these deals? 
Um, they just fall in our lap. <laughs> I was going to say, driving for dollars for these things. Yeah, driving for dollars. Yeah. We, we, it's we a mix. That. It's a mix. So sometimes you're going on, to, on market, you're finding, you're going through like what's called the best and final for multifamily, okay. getting going through a bidding process. Some of them completely unsolicited offers go off market. But now, actually, I pushed Ben at the be- very beginning and he hated me for this. But I pushed him to close in like 30 to 40 days, where contractually I had 60 days. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to be able to close really early and have that. Because when you go through a best and final, you get a what's called a questionnaire. Yeah. And they ask you your last few closings, your transaction history. So when I can say that I've closed mm-hmm. 30 to 40 days on average, even though the contract gives me 60, they love hearing that. So actually, we had a, our last property. It was, it was already being sold. It was under contract. And it, it fell out of contract. And we got a call because they knew we could close quickly. Hey, can you guys come in and get this? And, and so you don't get opportunities like that if you don't close early. So it's a bit of a mix. Actually, all four properties, I think, were a different acquisition like that. But actually, funny enough, they're all from the same broker so far. Oh, funny. <laughs> so one guy is like your... Well, one firm. One yeah, firm. One firm. One firm. Yeah. yeah. Rockstar. Okay, so that's cool. So you are getting these... I mean, these are not... You're not, you're not like direct mail marketing or anything like that at this level. Like at, at the large apartments, you're not doing... No, well, especially in a place like Phoenix, you know, you can't find an owner who's unaware that he's sitting on a pile of gold. Yeah. Period. Yeah. You know, like everything's trading at under five cap and it doesn't condition doesn't matter. You you can't, you know, you can't. And to think that we can compete with brokers whose job it is to communicate with each and every owner in town and who know everybody. In most big markets like Phoenix, there's four big, very large brokerages and they handle all of the volume. I mean, nothing really gets traded at this level outside of those brokerages. And they're so, very protective. Yeah. And, and they spend decades building relationships with all of these owners. Yeah. Um, so you're really not going to go around them uh, through direct mail marketing. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, because, like, again, this goes to the strategy. Some things work better in different markets yep. for different types of properties, for different levels. And so you guys are just, you're doing what's working there. You're working with the brokers. And I really, really love that tip. I just want to emphasize that because, you know, I don't want to gloss over it. That idea of, like, closing quick so you can tell people in the future what you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something we do uh, in open door capital is we're, we're always trying to like define like, what's that one thing when you're competing, like what's that competitive advantage you have? So we, we fly in no matter what, like we'll, we'll jump on a plane and go anywhere, anytime immediately. Like, even if it's just like, a, an uh, like, well, this one might be coming on the market soon. Like we want to be like, to show them that we are willing to jump on a plane and go look at the property. I'm like, what's it talk about open door? <laughs> that, didn't he, didn't he mean to say, Whitehaven? <laughs> is it confused? Do you guys do the same thing? You guys don't so, so, you so actually, we, I mean, we don't have to fly. But yeah, actually, but go, when we go to our property, yep. we show up with our entire team. We're not even yeah. under contract yet or yep. submitting an LOI, but we show up with our property manager, the VPs of construction. Again, exactly. goes to that, yeah. to that location that we yep. talked yep. about, yep. one of the kind of competitive advantage. Number one, being local. Yep. Right. Our HVAC, our electrical, our everything. Yeah. We've got people on the roof. Yeah. You know, with... Permission, yeah, of course. But, but yeah, we're inspecting the entire property when we're just doing an average tour, and they're not used to that. And but yeah. that's that's it's also like, that that, that like brings serious. up an interesting point because you know everybody wants to go through every apartment. If I'm going to rip everything out of every apartment, do I really care what the kitchen looked like? <laughs> no. All I need to know is is foundation solid. Yeah. Am I having to replace the roof within a year or within seven years? Is the electrical good? How are we doing an HVAC? That's it. Because I'm going in there with a business plan that says ten to twelve thousand dollars a unit on the interior, 
plus we're going to redo the, the you know the, the the paint the building build this build this build that and you know it, it's it's easy to work with us but it works for us because that's part of the business plan yeah we're not being inconvenienced by having to make these grandiose plans that's part of the chosen business plan and another way we stand out is we never retrade which you don't want to have their reputation especially yeah. in a in a small market um but yeah, or what we, do you mean you, trade explain that um so you get it on your contract yeah you're not talking to a professional <laughs> so you get it on your contract you have your inspection period i go in and i say oh i didn't know that the roof was in such bad condition i'm going to need a hundred thousand dollar discount uh to yeah. replace the roof and that's called retrading and when i get, we get that questionnaire that we talked about earlier in best and yep. final they ask you have you retraded ever yeah. and they want to know all the details and they're going to talk to your broker and the lender on what the circumstances were on that retrade so we never retrade. We go in almost always. I'm going to replace the entire roof. We just we bought last summer. We bought 164 unit. They they put on a brand new roof while we're in escrow. We still had it in our budget. I'm going to replace the roof. We just automatically. I'm just going to assume that I have to replace it so that I never have to retrade later on. And then the the, the reserves for capital expense and for other things. They're just, they're cells in the underwriting that never change. They just are. They're, they're there and we don't touch them. What does somebody look for, like in multifamily, what do you guys typically look at for CapEx uh, in terms of like, you know, if you had a hundred units? Well, like so so we're kind of nuts about cap. Like we want to be really well capitalized, yeah. right? So we go over the board. So of course we're going to have the roof. Yep. We're obviously going to have the paint. We're going to have whatever project specific we're going to do. Are we remodeling this office or are we building a new office? And we do both. Okay. Or same for the gym. Are we doing that? Side for that, are we taking 35% of the HVAC just to replace 35% of the HVAC to have the money in the bank? It's supposed to come out of the cash flow, but we want to have the first 35% of the units yeah. replacements. Same for the water heater. Same for a uh, plumbing contingency, same for electrical can continue say, you know, like then you have these unnamed items, you know, okay, this is a hundred units. We're going to take X number of dollars per unit. Then on top of it, we want X number of dollars. We basically have like nine, what we call working capital, nine months of debt service, the building. So if, 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 there, we, if something happened catastrophic, I could pay for nine months of the property and before we'd run out of working capital. I guess, so on a four to $5 million equity raise, about a million to a million and a half of that is what we call our margin of safety. So it's made between uh, working capital, contingencies on the construction, uh, reserves. Floats. Um, yeah, construction floats. So we, the lender pays for our construction. So we actually have to pay for it up front and then get reimbursed. And so you need a pretty large construction float to manage that. So about a million dollars of that is just going to those extra reserves and our margin of safety. That makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, if people aren't unfamiliar with what I'm talking about when I say like we're talking about CapEx, what we mean is? Capital expenditures. So anything that? that I'm spending to improve the property beyond just your- And anything that's frankly going to, there's a depreciatable item. So it's going to last more than, you know, 30 seconds. You're replacing a pipe that goes from the street to the building. You're going to put it in the ground and it's going to last for 25 years. That's CapEx. Okay, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So tenant punches a hole in the wall, that's a repair. That's a repair. Okay, right, and yeah. that's why on the like the bigger pockets calculators, which I wouldn't recommend doing for a 
two hundred unit apartment complex. But please, if you're please don't. Yeah, <laughs> if you're please buying don't. like a, I mean, because like there there's a level of sophistication when you're getting to the the large large multifamily that you right. really gotta underwrite a lot of stuff. But like that's why even on the on on a simple calculation like you're trying to buy a duplex, like capex is a real number. This is something actually I learned a lot from Ben here years ago. Is you went through this blog post where you said, look, like capex is a real thing. You took the price of a roof, the price of like windows, the price of everything, and you said, look. Here's all the stuff and this is the life that it lasts and here's how much it costs. So if you run all those numbers on the basic like 20 items in your property, it's like a couple hundred dollars uh, like a month on a house that you're just losing in ca- potential capex. That you should be setting, aside, should be setting aside so you have the money to deploy. Yeah. And that goes back to like depreciation that we get, right? Yeah. On our taxes. Well, everybody thinks that's just a gift. It's not a gift. It's the IRS saying to us, don't be stupid. We know you'll have to spend some money later, so we'll make it less painful for you and we'll give you some savings today. Don't be stupid. Set it aside. So tomorrow or day after tomorrow, five days after tomorrow, you have the money to spend on this stuff. Yeah. It's not an if you're going to spend it. It's a when you're going to spend it. Well, And the lender... They want to protect themselves, so they actually calculate the same thing for you, yep. um, and they give you that number. Whatever it's like, usually around two hundred and fifty dollars per unit per, per unit, year, yeah. and they just want to hold that aside in case. And by the way, I would not do two fifty per unit per year for like a duplex. Like your cap is right. gonna be way higher for a smaller Absolutely, unit because yeah. like you have the you have the efficiency. And I would larger. only do two fifty per unit per year if I have thirty five percent of the HVACs yeah, replaced already, in my capex, yeah. and everything interior is getting replaced, and the interior is yeah. all brand new, and yeah. and you know all that stuff because it's. Yeah. It's really more than yeah. CapEx can completely kill. Like here's an example I give people a lot. Let's say you bought a single family house and you're making a hundred dollars a month in cash flow. Good for you. Like you really feel good about that. And the whole first year you made twelve hundred dollars in cash flow and you feel great. Ten years later now you've made now twelve thousand dollars in cash flow. And then you have to put a new roof on and the new roof cost fifteen thousand dollars. Where you thought you were making money for ten years, you actually lost you know, three grand over that time period. And then that, ha- then five years later, you put a new fridge in and that's then exactly that's it. another, eight, you know, $2,000. And, and we're not even talking about tenants trash trash in the place. Yeah. Place, we're just know? talking about just like the fact that things wear out. If you don't account for those things, you will have to pay that piper eventually. And so that's why we, we I always put in like, yeah, typically I on a, like a single family, I'm like a hundred to $200 a month, a lot based on what numbers you came and just what I've seen in my own life. And then on the larger multifamily like that, you know, the, again, the 250 well, per year. Again, it depends if you have a boiler. You're going you're gonna to set aside more if you're yep. not stupid. Yeah. And if you have a lot of HVAC stuff because you're in yep. Phoenix or if you're in Minnesota, you're going to have a lot more expensive than if you're right. in, right. you know, And South if you're Carolina. in Minnesota- you got to replace the windows. Yes. Yeah. Things like that. You know, cause require. it just, it gets uncomfortably cold. Yeah. So CapEx changes per area. Quite Absolutely. A bit. It does. So it's, here's a hard, well, the, one of the hardest questions on real estate and, and I, there's not really a good answer for it. How do you know CapEx? If you're just getting started, you're trying to buy that fourplex. Like what do you even assume for CapEx? I've got an answer for you. You don't buy fourplex. <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> you, no, no, you don't assume you okay. think of it as a flip. Okay. I'll give you this example. If you buy a fourplex for $140,000 and you go through ownership of that fourplex and in four years you think the fourplex is worth 200000 even if you have to spend money on CapEx, you feel okay about it. Because why? Because you can get it back. Because the thing is worth $200,000 now. So you have an exit. You can refinance and recapitalize yourself. You can sell and recapitalize yourself. However, if you bought a fourplex for $140,000, you're still going to have CapEx, but it's only worth $140,000 still five years from now. Guess what you've done with the CapEx? You've thrown good money after bad. 
This is why I advise people, and I've learned this myself, it's all about the equity. Cash flow allows you to stay in the game long enough to execute the business plan, which is about the equity. Can you explain that a little bit more? I think that's a really good point. But a lot of people think they're just going to get rich off cash flow and cash flow is not well, really. And, and you can in a specific window of opportunity during a cycle. Mm-hmm. If you are buying rents of $900 today, but you managed to buy them in 2011 for 30000 a door, you're going to be making a lot of cash flow. And that applies. However, 2009, 2010, 2011 was an anomaly. There was a very wide discrepancy between what the price of that unit was versus what the rent on that unit is and will be. That was an anomaly. It, it, um, it's never going to happen again. So going forward, you just have to be careful to understand that Warren Buffett says diversification is protection against ignorance. I say growth and equity is protection against ignorance in income producing assets because income comes in, income goes out. But if you have an exit and you can make money by exiting, then at least you are not losing money. Yeah. You know, income is a fickle thing. Yeah. So to to put that in my own language, like if I buy a property, I want it to cash flow because if it doesn't cash flow, I lose money every month. Now I might just lose the property because I can't afford to keep it. But if I can make some good cash flow every single month, ideally, then even when I get hit with the CapEx and stuff, even like even if I held it for 10 years, what if I didn't make a ton of I, I didn't make a ton of money in cash flow? But I own a property for 10 years that's hopefully worth way more than what I paid for it. The loan's gotten paid down a bunch. I've gotten a bunch of tax benefits. And that's where that that equity, the difference between what now it's worth, which is now worth, let's say, 500 grand, and now I only owe 200 grand, that 300 grand now, that's a chunk of money. I sell the property and I can dump it. Now, some people just want to buy properties, a few of them, pay them all off to zero and just live on that cash flow. That's fine too, uh, because then you still have equity because you just paid out the property. So, But the point is the wealth is built from equity the cash flow just helps us maintain. That's and hopefully exactly help, it. Helps us pay some bills in the meantime. And 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 you discover that when it happens to you, mm-hmm. and it happened to us. It's like it's nice that the thing's cash flowing five hundred dollars a month, but this eighty thousand dollars in my pocket from selling it, yeah, is that's real a money. whole yeah. lot nicer. Yeah. Not to mention that now I can reinvest it, and you know, double, triple, quadruple it. Yeah. Right. So and that actually happens. And then you go like cash flow. Yeah. Like it's almost heresy, right? To to talk <laughs> bad about cash flow where you and I came from. Sure. I mean, like back in the day, you and I Well, it's because we we came out of the recession where everyone like during in oh six, oh seven, they didn't care anything. They're like, yeah, lose five hundred dollars a month. Who cares? I'm gonna double next year. Like, cause everyone was only focused on appreciation and, and right. And it. then everybody lost their job. Yep. And then we were like, oh, dude, I don't want to work for the man because I don't want it to happen to me. I need the cash flow because that cash flow means I don't have to punch the clock. So we swung completely the other way. And the truth is always somewhere in the middle. You need both. You need cash flow or you can't stay in the game. You need equity or you can't get rich. And that's just all there is to it. Yeah. Smart. Anyway, before I move on. Um, so we actually, we underwrite, so a lot of flexibility. So cash flow gives you that flexibility to exit yeah. whenever you want. That's what 
I think Ben's main point was, so if I want to sell in three years, if I want to hold it for 10 years, cash flow is the thing that allows me to hold on to it for that long yeah, and not be forced to sell. So we actually, we underwrite like three, five, 10 year exits. Uh, we structure our debt that allows us to exit when we want. So you have to know that from the beginning when you're doing a deal and underwriting, what is that going to look like? And what are my different points and options and what's going to allow me to get to each one of those points? Yeah. And flexibility to choose. Like we have two deals going on right now and one of them we're going to exit. Another one is basically a fancy burr because we're going to refinance it yeah. because of what it is, where it is and, yeah. and how it's doing. We're going to do better for ourselves because we can pull basically all our money out, all, all our investor capital out and still sit in the deal and cash flow it. And Yeah. Burr investing in apartments is a, is a phenomenal strategy yeah. as well. Cause you, yeah, you can get your investors their money back that you raised. For yeah. those who are not sure what I'm talking about, a burr is you buy a property, you rehab that property, you rent that property out. Now, usually we do it on small deals, but it works on big stuff. Yep. Uh, and then you, once it's all fixed up and nice, whatever, instead of selling it like a flip, you just go and refinance it, go to a bank, get a whole new loan, pay back all the money you put into it. Now you have a lot less money, maybe no money, but maybe just less money that's actually left in the deal. Right. When you have no money into a deal and you're still making cash flow, that means your return is just through the roof. Right. And, uh, you know, ideally. And so that's where you can get stupid good, like you know, yeah. even infinite returns by doing that. Right. And the, you're de-risking. Yes. There's no risk. Yeah. You pull, I mean, you're risking the equity that you built, but yeah. you're not risking your money. You're playing with a bank money. Yes. Because you already point. pulled your cash. You got your money right. back out. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's move on to the next segment of the show where we learn more about specifics about one of your guys' deals. So this is time for the deal deep dive. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. 
BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from six, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com slash VP. Connectinvest.com slash VP. All right, this is the, the deal deep dive where we're gonna dive into one deal. So you got something in mind that we can tear apart? Sure. Actually, can we do... Do we have enough time for two deals? Because Ben Ben mentioned that we're doing a flip and then a burr, basically, on two, sure. two recent deals. So I think it would be nice to talk about both. We've never done a double deal deep dive, but today we're doing the double deal deep dive. <laughs> well, there's, there's two there's of us. There's two of you. Okay. So it's, it's only fair. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So we'll, we'll go through one through eight questions on the first one and then go one through eight on the next one. All right, number one. Let's go to the first one. What kind of property is this? Well, if you've listened to the last hour, you probably know that it's 100 unit multi plus multifamily. Okay. Um, this one's actually 98 units. So, uh, oh, so right. Yeah. Way to. Wait yeah. Up. Do you remember yeah. Josh Dawkins response? Yeah. What was it? Yeah, when he found out yeah. it's, it's not over a hundred units, Benjamin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how did you find this? How did you find this property? This one was actually our first property. Okay. Got it from the broker on market. They were actually going to go to call for offers and then invest in final. While we're on our tour, we asked the uh, broker, will he be willing to sell and skip all of that? If we give him the price he wants. And we had that number and we get an offer. So we got to bypass the best and final. Mm, so that way I'm not competing against big companies that are, I'm not going to look great against when it's our first property. Yeah, that right. makes sense. I like it. 
Number. Well, I would have looked great because <laughs> I always look great. Yeah, I mean physically <laughs> on paper. Number three. How much was the property? We bought it for eight point two million. Eight point two million. How did you negotiate this property? Well, like you we can't said, told us, yeah. Phoenix is a really hot market, uh, seller's market. They kind of just say, this is my price. Yeah. And actually, we were able to underwrite even higher than that. So we you went with like the what they asked a, for. Yeah. You got, feel like you got actually a good enough deal. All right, next one. How did you fund this property? I don't know if we've talked about this, but we're actually uh, syndicators. Oh, okay, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we pull you raise money together and, and then okay. we get a loan for the rest. And, All right, and you guys usually do 506 506B. B. B. Yep. So uh, we have a sophisticated and accredited. Um, but we get, and then for the financing, we do a bridge loan, three plus one plus one. What does that mean? Um, so three year initial bridge loan, uh, but we have two one year extension options. Okay. Um, uh, well, we need to talk about that because, you know, we need to talk about that. Right. So that's actually one of our safety triggers. Now, why, why is it safe, Ben? You have to refinance in three years because it's only a three plus one. They're like, what's safe about that? Well, and then everybody else, you know, you go on Facebook and there's nothing but syndicators there in 2020. And everybody gets these 10-year fixed interest rate deals. What people don't understand oftentimes is that ability to exit is probably the greatest safety trigger that you can have with any real estate. You just need to be able to exit your position. That ability is very limited by your prepayment penalty. Mm, yeah. And the privilege of a low fixed interest rate for a very long period of time is you pay for that privilege. Both Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, in exchange for the benefit of that fixed interest rate, you potentially could look at millions of dollars of prepayment penalty, which of course very significantly hampers your exit because yeah. it could completely destroy your returns on that exit. So that's tied to fixed rate. But what you could do is variable rates and they're a little bit higher interest rates, but I don't have that huge prepayment penalty. I just 1% usually, or they have sometimes a step down. Yeah. But uh, when I think variable, I think of 2007 where my exactly. rate went from 2% to 29% overnight and now I'm bankrupt. Right. And so that's why most people don't do it. So yeah. what we do is we buy an interest rate cap. And so we, we actually cap it at- Which is an the, insurance product. Yep. Interesting. So we there, hedge the interest rate. So uh, basically say, if the rate goes above today's rate, a third-party insurance company pays that increase, not us. Oh, fascinating. I didn't even know that existed. So we just, we just factor that into our co- closing costs every time, and we just calculate what that interest rate cap is going to be to Smart calculate that. Guys. I mean, that's a whole another conversation, because if you look at the market today, and you see what the Fed is doing, what are the chances the interest rates are going up anytime soon? But- with that aside, once you contractually cap your rate, yeah, you know you have three years now to figure out how to refinance or how to exit if you want to plus one plus one. So you got five years really to figure out what to do. So if the rest of your business plan and your underwriting is intact, then there's a lot more risk with having to pay defeasance than risk of not being able to roll the debt. Defeasance meaning like prepayment. That's yeah, it's 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 just one type of prepayment. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm curious just on the last thing on the funding thing. Do you remember how many people like like to raise money for that that deal? Eight million dollars you would have 
I think it was about 60 investors on the first. About 60 yeah. investors. And how much did you raise then versus how much was the loan? Do you remember? Uh, the, the, the loan, loan the loan includes 75% of the purchase and 100% of the capex. It was about 7.3 million. Okay. We raised 3.571 million. Okay. I think I'm in that one. Yes, you are. All right, good. All right, so <laughs> you're what, never think. <laughs> There's like one. He's... All right, so what did you do? What did you do with it? Um, so like we talked about, we completely renovate it. Okay. Um, we do a lot of common area amenities too. So we add a fitness center, we redo the clubhouse, the office. So actually we, we just finished all of that. We're about halfway done with the unit renovations and we're actually pretty going to sell for almost our ex- full exit price. Um, only halfway renovated. Um, wow. so we're actually on the market right now. We don't have a sales price, probably going to go between 13 and 14 million. Wow. So, yeah, great. Almost. Yeah. So that'd be a nice flip. Uh, it's about 30% IR where we underwrote 14 and 15%. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. Congratulations, guys. That's very cool. All right. So so, uh, it sounds to me like you'll be making some money. Sounds like I I might be making some money. (laughs) What lessons did you learn from this deal? We've gotten even more conservative with our underwriting. Mm. We've, we've, we've got more liquidity and we've discounted our cash flows even more. That's cool. With every deal we did. Very cool. And, and on the syndication, it was a 70, 30. Is that how that syndications work usually? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Ours ours is the 80% 70, 30 split. Yeah. Uh Very cool. Very cool. So at the end of the day, and we don't have to necessarily talk about this, but like be, the way, what I mean by 70, 30 is that the investors, so like people like myself and others who invest in the money, they get 70% of uh, generally the deal. And you guys as the sponsors get 30%, even though you're not putting up all the money for this thing. I mean, you right. like the investors are putting the money in, you're managing the deal. So at the end of the day, you'll get a big paycheck at the end of the day uh, for making this and thing work. And that's after you got eight, the first 8%. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I got the 8%. And then we split things 70, 30. Every, everything and, after that. Yeah, this is what's so cool about syndications is that it basically, I mean, you guys have, obviously you make some fees in the meantime, you get property management fees and asset, or asset management fees and stuff. But like at the end of the day, like you do a good job. I'm happy because I make a good return on my money. I'm limited partners are happy, but then you guys make a good chunk of money at the end. Again, the equity. Yep. Now you can dump that into future deals of your own. And like, yeah, yep. syndication is a cool, a cool business model, but it's not an easy process. I mean, you guys have been yeah. working this for years, yeah. learning how to, perfect these models and stuff. So very cool. All right, let's move on to the next deal deep dive because we wanted to do two. What was another property? What was this one? So this one was just a few months later, um, 117 units, Okay. Uh, different part of town, still in Phoenix. All right. It, How'd you find it? So this one was actually completely off market. We submitted an offer. Or we had our broker help us look for properties. Um, someone he had a relationship with submitted an offer and they, mm-hmm. they countered, but it was still well under below what we had. I think we paid, well, I guess we can talk about price, but it was like yeah. 91 a door or something, which is yeah, really awesome. Yeah, that was the next question, Dennis. Uh, how much was it? It's 10, 10.8 million, 10.75 million. Okay. And any negotiation tactics in there? Anything you learned from? Um, we submitted a really low, low ball offer and they, so they came up a little bit, but not too much. And, but it was well with underneath what we underwrited, we could pay for the property. That's cool. But you know, this was a very big seller. This was an institutional seller. So I don't want to hear Billions comments about, you know, hey, you found mom and pop and you, you took <laughs> advantage of them and and a lot, a lot. These guys have been around for years. They're huge, like really, really a big, one of the biggest owners in Phoenix, which is a 5 million population place. It's not really a small place. Yeah. To say that you're one of the biggest owners there is, is, is something. Yeah. So this was very legit arm's length transaction, but they had a circumstance which had nothing to do with performance of this property. They just had a reason to get out. Yep. 
and they had a reason to do it quickly and quietly. And we just happened to come along and we were a known commodity somewhat by then. And so they did it. And I'm convinced. So they had billions in assets or they have billions in assets. And I'm convinced that they don't realize, didn't realize what was happening around this property. A lot of new construction development going around this property where a few months after we closed. So we bought it low 90s a door. A few months after we closed, stuff's in the high 130s per door. Wow. And pr- very similar properties. So I, I just think that they they had bought in the bottom of the market. They had so much appreciation. It didn't make sense to keep tabs on it. They weren't really raising rents too much. It, it, they just didn't know what they had. Well, they didn't need to. That was a different cycle, different business plan. But this property, because of where it is, it's like, you know, two months after we bought, there were things selling for 135. A month and a half ago, something sold for almost 200,000 a door. Wow. So that's what makes this a burr because all in renovation, escrows, deposits, CapEx, everything were into this 115 a door. So knowing that things is already trading at almost double. It's like, why don't we refinance and hold on? Because with what's going on in this location, nothing but good things can happen. So that's what makes it a nice... So that was my next two questions. Is, yeah, what'd you do with it and what was the outcome? So you're go- you did refinance or you're going to refinance? Going, we're to, going refinance. to refinance. So okay. we're about halfway done renovating all of the units. We just finished, as of, I think, tomorrow... Our new signage goes in. We're rebranding the property, or maybe today. Um, today. And so, yeah, so we're done with all of that. And later this year, in about six yeah, months. Yeah, because we have people. We can be out here talking yeah, you can to be you. Out here in Maui. And we out, have yeah. signage going in. See, we got, we got, we got, pe- we're big. You're not strapping we're very tool big, belts anymore. Very good looking and very big. <laughs> and so later this year, yeah, we'll hit the numbers that we need to to be able to pull out all or most of, if not all, of the equity. That's and cool. And so, just, just to confirm, so when you guys, when you pull out, like, let's say you're doing a burr on a large multifamily. When you pull out the equity, it's, and then let's say you pay back all your limited partners. Like, they get their they money They remain back. their standing still, in the deal. Okay, they're still in the deal. So it's not you're paying them and they're like, all right, you guys are off now. Nope. Yeah, they're still owners. So now they're owners of a deal, getting cash flow from a deal with no but money. they have little no money, money in yeah, the deal. And that's, which is awesome from an investor Which standpoint. is ridiculous. Yeah, we've right? been talking about the exact same thing with open door capital a little and bit. And if we don't sell it, then yeah. there's no there's no capital gains they don't yep. have to worry about. So Very, very cool. Yeah, you're right. That's awesome. Last question. What lessons did you learn from this deal? Submit a lot of unsolicited offers, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's our best deal. I actually we... listened to your broker. Yeah. You know, he brought this deal to us a couple of months prior. And we kind of looked at this location. And I think we kind of felt about it the same as the seller felt about it. Just like, you know, nothing there, you know. And we didn't really take a closer look. Well, the broker went and looked at the property. And I get this call from him and I'm on my way in the car coming back from another property, Sam and I looked at, and he says, you guys are nuts. You need to come down here and take a look at this. There's like 24 hour fitness across the street. There's like all these offices that, that built he says, I didn't remember any of this being here. There's gated community with hope selling for 400 to $600,000. And this all came up in the last three, four, five years. Yeah. And this, you know, so I went and I was like, Sam, holy shit, we should make an offer. That's how it happened. All right. That's good. Those are, those are good double deal deep dive today. Yes. Now we're going to skip the fire round today because this has been a long show and move right into the world famous. Famous four. All right. Time for the famous four. This is the part of the show where we ask the same four questions that we ask every guest every week. I know we've asked Ben before. 
And uh, you have not had a chance, Sam, to answer this one. So we'll, we'll go for both of you, though. Question number one, each of you. What is a current or a previous or somehow in your life uh, important, most important, favorite, however you want to call it, real estate related book other than your own? I don't know, Ben, you wrote some. The One of the first ones I read when learning about multifamily was the complete, I'm sure everybody said it, but the complete guide to uh, buying and selling apartment buildings by Steve, Steve Burgess. Yeah. yeah, great book. Ben? How I turned a thousand into what a million, a million or five million. million there was like one and then three then five yeah. he just kept yeah. getting richer so it's i don't think it's in print anymore yeah but it is the formula like at the time i was like well dude i don't want to flip houses he was actually discussing burr yeah basically because he was yeah. renting most of them but it's like what we do with apartments yeah i didn't have the intellectual worth to compartmentalize it that way but that book Tells you everything you need to know about real estate. Yeah, that's true. All right, number two, business book. Um, one I'm reading right now is the uh, Checklist Manifesto. Ah, great book. Yeah, I can see you liking that book. Yeah. Well, actually, coming from the CPA world, they live on checklists. checklists There's yep. checklists everywhere. So yeah, just getting back into that habit with real estate. There you go. So the last one I listened to. I can't remember the name of it, but the dude hired a Navy SEAL. Oh, Jesse Itzler. Yeah, Jesse yeah, Itzler. Living with a SEAL. Yeah, that's a I loved it. Book. Yeah, that was a great book. Just like every morning I get in the shower and wash myself. Of course, I wouldn't do any push-ups or anything because that's too much work. But, you know, I do get in the shower and I, I turn the thing on. And, yeah. And his wife is so successful. Yeah. That's the most uh, spandex. Uh, what's her name? Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, just Spanx, yeah. Uh, shoot, Jesse Etzler and Jones Shark Tank. Yeah, what's she, her name? She's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember her name anyway. Uh, like Sarah Blakely. Blakely, yes. yeah, yeah. Especially the chapters you talked about her, because talk about nothing to yeah, she's blow up. Awesome. Yeah, she is a. Uh, all right, Jesse was a podcast guest of ours on the Bigger Pockets podcast, episode three hundred and thirteen. If you guys want to really listen to the author of that book, Jesse, uh, he tells us a story about living with a seal. It was a, a great book. Yeah, phenomenal book. Number three. Hobbies. What do you guys do for fun? We travel to Maui and visit Brandon. That's true. <laughs> That's exactly what you do for fun. And we hang out in the pool. And you guys, have you been to the beach yet? No. <laughs> Should we go right <laughs> after this? Should we just end this interview right now and go to the go beach? Go to the beach. Yeah, you got to get to the beach in Maui. Maybe Ryan will take you to go see um, some hammerhead sharks or something. I like traveling. Uh, canyoneering is one thing. I don't know if you've heard of that. Canyoneering? Yeah. So you actually start at the top of a canyon and you traverse your way down, whether it's rappelling, uh-huh. uh, climbing. I always wanted to do that. I didn't know what it was called, but yeah, pretty awesome. Actually, really not popular in it. Southern Utah and Zion National Park. Um, but you've not done it at the Grand Canyon, have you? No, not at the Grand Canyon. But I've done it in Arizona and Southern Utah. Hey, didn't your wife tell me she's never been to the Grand Canyon and you live in Phoenix? That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> you got a vacation to take. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> have you been to the Grand Canyon? I'm old and rich <laughs> so i pay people to do canyon nearing for me and to play with shark i i, yep. I pay them for that yeah so you don't and tell me it. all about it yeah there you go uh, maybe make some movies yep. take some pictures there you go you know i'm spending a fortune on my children yeah and the talented kids. my girl is always gone doing auditions and this and that with her mom so i'm home with my son that was them calling and saying honey you've been gone for too long that's pretty much what that was. What separates successful real estate investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Let's start with Ben. First of all, I don't think real estate investing is right for everyone. Okay. Can we just acknowledge that? All right. Sam, what do you think? Because <laughs> it's not right for everyone. 
I think in life you have to have an unfair competitive advantage. Unfair being the key to competitive advantage. And if you don't have an unfair competitive advantage to be in real estate, don't do real estate. Find something that you will have an unfair competitive advantage in and do that. Life is too short to play somebody else's game. You got to play your own game. So what separates, and that's God's honest truth as far as I'm concerned, is that in some way, shape, or form, we have an unfair competitive advantage. Mine was that I had MS, I didn't have any other options, so my advantage was it was either this or fail at life. His is that his relationship with numbers is such that just flat out gives him a compare uh, unfair competitive advantage. So in my estimation, you have to know yourself and you have to not try to shove a square peg in a round hole. And if this is the right thing for you to do, you'll know it. You don't need me to tell you. You don't need Brandon to tell you. You'll know it. You just, it has to be the right thing for you to do. Very good. Uh, what do you think? Uh, consistency for me. Um, going back to when we first started, and that's that six months that we spent looking for deals, putting offers on deals, and just never, just not giving up and not getting swayed and to go do something else, just doing consistent and underwriting every day, putting offers on deals, and eventually you're going to break through. Yeah, so true. All right, last question. Where can people find out more about you guys? Whitehavencapital.com whitehavencapital.com and justaskbenwhy.com all right very good all right guys we got to get out of here but uh, it's been fantastic thank you guys for joining me in the sea shed today out here in maui now get to the beach all right that was our show with ben and sam two wicked smart guys but remember as i said in the introduction we are actually gonna tack on an extra like 45 minute show give or take a little bit uh here at the end so right now we're going to it uh and this was recorded after or at least it was recorded the day after Mother's Day 2020. And so you're going to hear the first thing we just talked about for the last couple hours was really all about before the COVID thing really came down, social distancing came down. Now we're going to talk about a little bit about, about after. And again, just like before, there's some high level stuff here, but this stuff is super important. I want you guys to pull out this stuff, uh, these like just the gold nuggets from this episode. And we'll kind of summarize at the end in case you get lost throughout it, because again, we are covering a lot and it's very high level. Uh, we'll summarize at the end a little bit all these important points that are going to change your real estate investing life forever. So uh, without further ado, let's jump over to our second interview post crazy social distancing, or at least during with Ben and Sam. All right, Ben and Sam, it's been a whole like six seconds since we left you on the podcast and uh, we're coming back in for kind of a, I don't know, an outro, a secondary outro. We got to have a better name for this. It's a, uh, it's a reprisal. A reprise? Is that a name? Your your kids in theater, Ben. Isn't that what it's called when they come back on? It's, Encore? It's called Encore. a reprise. Among oh, a reprise. us, intelligentsia. It's called a reprise. <laughs> now, you wouldn't know okay. about intelligentsia, okay? So, I just go to my reprising, and <laughs> we're going to talk about real estate <laughs> right now. All right. <laughs> Fellas, <laughs> so we had you on the show uh, just like a few minutes ago, but in reality, we recorded this obviously a couple months ago, right, bef right before, uh, as COVID uh, social distancing was being enacted. In fact, you guys were like staying next door to me uh, here in Maui and you came over, uh, you trekked through the woods, you got to my sea shed, we recorded the episode and then 
you went home and you were like the last person to stay in that house before they shut down all vacation rentals and the entire world went nuts. So we thought, let's talk to you guys about what what's changed in the past couple months since this happened. I mean, we had a lot of conversation about what if and what could happen in the world. And, and, and then now we've seen what happened. So let's go through a, a little bit of, obviously we don't need to like recap much because we just talked about it, but I'm curious, what have you guys, what have you guys seen in the past couple of months in terms in regards to your real estate properties? Yeah. Um, so we've actually seen pretty good collections. So if you look at national multi-housing council, every week they've been publishing rent trackers and showing how much, what percentage of the country is paying the rent on time. Um, and they're comparing that to lat to this is starting in April. So they're comparing it to March and then as well as last year. And we tracked pretty well ahead of that the entire time. Um, I think, couple of our properties were at 99% end of the month at 99%, 98% collections. The lowest we had was 96% collections at one of our properties. And it was the most recent one we purchased. And we can talk about why that is. But we've seen pretty good collections. And actually, May is doing a lot better than April. Interesting. I think we're, we're 15% ahead of where we were in April. Yeah, that's cool. So here's what I find funny. I've seen a number of articles come out over the past couple of months of like, you know, all the tenants are not paying rent and this problem and this problem. And, and, and in reality, everybody I've talked to has been fine. Like, I don't, I don't think I've had anybody who's like, nobody's paying rent. It's not happening. So I do wonder a little bit about this whole, uh, I wonder a bit about where these studies are coming from. Does that mean most of the landlords we associate with just know what they're doing? And like, it's like they're being weighted down by people who just have you, no you idea know, what they're You doing. and I taught them. They, they ought to know what they're doing, right? I mean, we've yeah, been I know this for doing. a decade. I'm crying out loud. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we'll pat ourselves on the yeah, back. Clearly, that's why this is, is going well. Yeah, I, I find it funny. Like, if we're all above average, that means a lot of people that are below average. And I don't know where those people are, but they must be out there somewhere. Uh, or I don't know. There's, there's, you know, we're we're stuck in today, right? So, so let's give people credit because there's a lot of pessimistic people, and a lot of people are saying, "Oh, there's trouble coming down the pike and all that." So we need to separate those two conversations. The Fed has pumped, what is it, David? Five trillion into the economy. It's like. And counting it's a couple trillion, right? All in, you know, between the stimulus and the, the, the their operations, you know, it's, it, it's it's not surprising that collections are doing fine. The real question, macroeconomically, as as it relates to real estate, is going to be how are those collections priced? In other words, what's going to happen to the market is a function of how investors value these collections. So your NOI stays the same or even does better. You know, at Canyon 35, we now know that we collected $82,000 in revenue in March, which was the highest March to date. It looks like about 85. We don't, we don't have those numbers yet, but somewhere between 84 and 85 in April. We're supposed to be down in April. April just set a new high at Canyon. That's a 98-unit property. It had two residents that didn't pay. We have South Mountain. We talked about South Mountain, 117-unit property. There was one resident that didn't pay. Now, this is fantastic. We can tap ourselves on the shoulder. Now, the people that have been around for a long time, though, understand that valuations are a function of how you premium the revenues. What are these revenues worth? adjusted to risk because that's really the 
the question and the conversation. When you buy an asset that is an income-producing asset, whether it be a multifamily or a storage facility or what you do, what's the revenue worth? How much am I willing to pay for that revenue? You know, a lot of the voices that you hear right now are people being very pessimistic in that investors are going to want to discount the validity of this revenue. Because why? Because Fed pumped in $5 trillion, because, you know, the stimulus, because the unemployment people are making more money on unemployment than when they work. Yeah. And clearly we don't have visibility in that. But interestingly, if you're going to be logical about this, you as an investor who needs to deploy capital, you have choices to make. So it's not like real estate exists in like vacuum without anything else. What are you going to do? Bonds for, for your income? Are you going to go buy a business? Are you going to buy, what is it that you're going to buy? And so the very interesting conversation to me right now, the most interesting, because we already know what the operations look like. Operations are fine. We're fine. Yeah. Okay. Now, I don't know what happens six months from now. Personally, I think class A is going to take it on the chin because right now they're fine. But four months down the road, when those cupcakes, their parents are telling them they're not going to pay for their fancy apartment in downtown while they play guitar in a bar around the corner. You know, when that in Denver, when that happens, maybe, maybe the situation <laughs> changes in class A, but class C already took it on the chin. But we, yeah. conversation around operations, we kind of already have it priced in. Every, like you said, you talk to everybody, everybody knows, and nationally they track it. The real question is, does that bring us to a standstill? Like, will Sam and I buy a property right now? Do we know how to underwrite a property going forward? Or do we need to sit and wait and see what the risk premium really is and price that in and understand how that works? So when you say risk premium, I think just to summarize a little bit, but what we're talking about here is essentially, and you can correct me if I'm summarizing wrong, but essentially we're talking cap rates, right? So a cap rate is essentially a way of looking at how the market values income, right? That property makes a lot of income. That's more risky. That's less risky. I'm going to pay a higher cap or lower cap. My question then is like, what do you think? I mean, are, do you think cap rates are then going up no. across the industry? I don't think, you think they're, they're going, going to stay up. Where they're at? And even if they are going up, if you got 10 years, you can stay in the deal. You can, you know, you don't have to sell when the cap rates sure. go up. You can wait it out. You can cash flow the property and sell when the cap rates come to the down yeah. to where you come down. There's a clear disconnect right now. Buyers all think for some reason that they deserve a huge discount. Yep. None of the sellers who are cash flowing just fine, such as us, are even remotely willing to consider that type of a discount. So, Ben, can I can I jump in? We need to clarify a couple of concepts. And when we talk about cap rate, it's basically an evaluation that's that metric that's used to determine how much a property is worth. And for purposes of this conversation, the lower the cap rate, the more a property is worth. So if Cap rates are rising in a sense that means there is less demand for this product. And so the property itself becomes worth less. And when you're when you're using a metric like that, Ben's argument is it's it's more or less a kind of a newbie way of looking at, at a, what a property is worth because there's so many more metrics that go into it. But you do need to consider that when you're thinking about selling because the person who's buying yes. your property might look at that. So cap rate is really, it measures demand. It, it really yeah. isn't. Yes a good investment return metric. It's just a demand metric. So generally speaking, people will be willing to deploy capital at higher price points 
if they feel safer in that marketplace. Maybe there's job growth. Maybe there's population growth. Maybe there's whatever. Maybe there is a supply-demand issue that, that suggests that long-term, you know, price is going to stay. Whatever the reason is, that's why you have a market over here with a low cap rate, which means people are paying high dollars, and you have a market over there with a very high cap rate, which means people are paying lower amount for the same revenue stream. And what you were saying, yeah. what, part of the point that you're making is that buyers are expecting cap rates to go up, so properties should be worth less and they should get a deal. But sellers are saying, no, it's still worth the same to me because the cash flow hasn't actually stopped. I don't That's know what exactly you're smoking. It. That's and we're exactly. in this weird dynamic right now where the market's sort of stalling because each side's expectations aren't being met. Right. Right. Mm. And so now you have these two camps of people who are uh, buyers are like, well, we're going to just wait and see if, until you guys run into trouble. And us as sellers, I'm like, why should we run into trouble? We had April yeah. collections higher than March. And, and now May collections are on track to be just fine. And yeah, it's because of the Fed. And yeah, it may be artificial. But guess what? Fed's on my side. Do you really think in an election year, there's not going to be another stimulus if my tenants can't pay rent? Do you really think that's going to happen? <laughs> yep. So, you know, that enters into this whole another political conversation and everything else. So you have this environment where potentially buyers sit over here and sellers sit over there. And that goes on for nine months, for all I know, through November, through the election and everything else. Yeah. So the question is, and I guess I like the way of looking at it this way, because David, you brought this exact point up a few weeks ago on the podcast about single family houses and small deals. The same thing applies here. Like David, you, I think you said it was like prices won't drop like super fast because sellers are going to hang on to it because they still remember the good old days. And the, and the buyers are all thinking immediately, this is 2008, let's get a 20% discount. And so what happens is there's this this lag that happened. There's another layer of this that I just realized maybe yesterday as I was going back and forth in my head with a lot of what Ben is talking about. And it has to do with a lot of the really successful, wealthy people that that I know and that Brandon knows. I'm sure you guys know some of them too, that have been telling people, preserve capital, sit on the sidelines, wait for a yeah. good deal. Yeah. And then the, the newbie, the amateur, the less su successful person hears that and goes, oh, that if Warren Buffett's doing that, then I'm gonna do that too, because I wanna follow Warren Buffett. And I was, I was kind of trying to reconcile all this in my mind because I'm not waiting for this huge crash before I would actually take action. But I also don't think that that's stupid. And I, and I kind of think that the guys who were saying wait would agree with me if they looked at the deal. And what I realized is a lot of those people giving that advice are not in the same position as the guy who doesn't own a property or owns one or two who is actually looking to work and manage and learn the business and make money on a deal. They are running companies and they want a completely passive investment. They don't need to invest in anything. They have plenty of income coming in. They are in no rush. They're happy to wait for the bottom. And if it takes 12 years, well, then they'll wait 12 years because if they go buy a property, that's work they necessarily don't want to do. The people listening to this podcast, they're looking for work. They want a property. They want a deal. They want something that cash flows. They want to learn the business. They want to plant a seed that will grow into a tree over the next four years that's going to be huge. And when you're listening to the guy who's worth $150 million and has other people managing his assets, he doesn't even do it himself. And he doesn't know or she doesn't know what's happening with that deal they buy. Their advice is going to be much different. They can pass up on, on 80 great or good deals to get one great one because they don't want to be bothered from the other stuff they're doing. 
I can't pass up on 80 good deals at this stage in my career. Correct. If I see 80 good deals, I want to buy them. And that's an important thing to keep in mind when you hear that Twitter quote from Mark Cuban or somebody telling you, no, 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 wait, it could crash more. I'm waiting, right? That doesn't mean that he's in the same position with his capital that, that people like us are that are actively looking to build our portfolios. Agreed. Yeah. Completely. That's a good point. All right. So here's a question then. So in your, in the way you're analyzing deals now, especially, you know, like in what you're looking at, are you estimating, I guess, rents going up the same amount that you were before? Do you think rents are going to say, or have you stopped Sam, like your, your rent growth or your predictions there? Where, where are you at with that? So in, in our underwriting, we are not projecting rent growth for the next two years. Okay. That's, I think that's very conservative. I think we will have rent growth. Um, Phoenix is still supposed to have top population growth in the country. For this year, it's likely going to continue next year, and construction has slowed down. So we're going to use, probably even see higher rent growth uh, than what we were seeing before. But just but, to be safe, you're... but to be safe, yeah, you and investors. I mean, it's hard to have that in-depth conversation and justify it. Be conservative. Yeah, we've we've stopped for the first two years, uh, no rent growth. But there, but there's two different types of rent growth for us. We're still renovating properties, and we're still seeing four hundred dollar increase in rents on the ones that we're renovating, where a lot of people, they're stopped renovations. Ben and I don't believe in that. We're actually delivering a different product through our renovations. And there, there's someone's willing to pay for a completely different products. We get a different tenant in there that's willing to pay that. Whereas a lot of other type of renovations where you're just putting lipstick in there, light remodel, and you're just trying to squeeze more dollars out of the existing tenant, you, that you're probably stopping right now. You're not going to get squeeze more dollars out of that existing tenant. But if I'm completely moving up a class of product yeah. and getting a different type of tenant in there, I'm still going to get that rent premium. There's still a difference between a B and a C class. Right. And, and that's become such a cliche. You know, we're going to buy class C property and we're going to put some lipstick on yep. that pig and we're going to make it into a class B property. Guys, like property class is not exact science. So they look at the age of property. They look at the vintage. They also look at the amenity package. They also look at the unit layout. So a class A property would be something that's not only new, but it's trendy. Okay. You can build class A that's not really class A. Believe it or not. Yeah, you can build low income housing in a class A. I mean, like brand new. It doesn't mean it's nice. And then, you know, unless you are on the coast, in New York or or in San Francisco, where if you are overlooking the water, it doesn't matter if you're 150 years old, you're still class A. In majority of the country, class A is newer construction. So can you take a 1985 building, no matter what you do with it, you can put gold-plated toilets in it. Can you really intellectually, honestly call it class B? When class B could be 1998 which looks different, the layouts are different, the amenity packaging is very different, and you may not be able to replicate it or compete with it. So I see a lot of disingenuousness in all of this. Yeah. What Sam and I do is, is, at best, we create a subclass. So we take a class C property, and we go into this location, and we're saying to people, basically, hey, we know it's not for all of you, but are there... 90 of you, 160 of you in this two-mile radius that have pulled yourself by the bootstrap and make that $50,000 a year. And you are willing to spend a few extra bucks to live nice. You, yeah. you would have done it already, but nobody came in to give you that product. Well, now we're coming in to give you that product. 
But that's been our business plan is because we're, we're from the get-go. We're saying, hey, we're going to spend more than anybody else on improvements. We're going to create a subclass of product that tenants literally don't have any other choice. If they yep. make enough money and they want something a little nicer, we are it. Everybody else is resurfacing the countertops and refacing the drawers. We're putting in brand new stuff with granite and stainless. Nobody else is doing it. We're it. So, you know, just to make a point, this applies, by the way, just for people listening, not just to the big apartment complexes, but I found this in my single families, my duplexes. Like I like to say that you guys heard me say it before, probably is C and D class tenants still watch Chip and Joanna Gaines. They still want that beautiful look. They just, nobody's given it to them in a lot of markets, like especially like B minus C class, even D class, like you just, those tenants can't find that thing, but they like you go to Starbucks and you pay $5 for a cup of coffee. Why? Because of the experience and because of the ambiance and because the coffee is maybe good and it feels good in your hand. People are willing to pay a premium. Even people who don't have a lot of money for a premium, they're willing to pay a premium for a premium product. You guys are providing premium within that ecosystem, right? So it's not real class A, class A, but it's class A of that kind of that location. Yeah, I have this. I have this fourplex. It's Rosie's fourplex. We we got this thing. It had, um, and we were average rent for like four twenty five, four fifty, and I mean they were all vacant except for one garbage hoarder. But like that's what they were getting their worth around four fifty, five hundred, maybe like nice six fifty. Maybe I could push it to. I'm getting like $800 a month for each of the four. So even though it's in a pretty, pretty bad location, like I would not, it's the worst location of any property I own yet. I'm getting like, yeah, up to, upwards of 800 bucks for it. Why? Because it's just a better product than anything else in that market. And there are people, I don't need all of them. This is the point you just made, Ben. I just need 90 or for me, I needed five. Right. I needed four or five people in that market who are willing to pay a premium to go to Starbucks instead of going to 7-Eleven. Right. For the and it's, it's yeah. silly of us to assume that everybody wants to live like everybody else. If mm-hmm. you grew up here and your grandparents live here and your kids go to school here, you know, it, you want to stay here. You don't want to drive to that other part of town, no matter how nice it is, and then drive 57 minutes to get to work and pick your kids up yep. at school and, and all of that. You, you just want something a little nicer. Now, you got to be careful. You have to have the right product, the right unit mix, the right unit layout the right amenity package, the right location. It's not as simple as you go buy a piece of shit in a piece of shit location and you can put granite in it and it's fantastic. It's not, that's the fastest way to lose money. So there's- So so the strategy, Ben, in this case is gonna be look at your market and try to be the best option compared to what you have next to you. Don't just take this random blanket strategy of if I put in granite countertops, they will, if I build it, they will come, right? Which ties into your earlier point that not all revenue streams are the same because it's a very good point that you made when you're buying investment property, what you're really doing at its base is buying a revenue stream. You don't really care how pretty it is or what it looks like other than how those things will affect your, your NOI at the end of the day. Correct. And some revenue streams, for instance, hypothetically, a complex in Beverly Hills where 95% of your tenants are doctors who are never home versus Detroit at the, the peak of its misery. Those revenue streams are completely different. They require complete different amounts of work to maintain them. It, it's a completely different experience. So that's why, in theory, some cap rates are lower than others because the money comes easier in some places. Right. In last week's episode, we interviewed Josiah Smelser, and he went over how he had made like 10 Burr properties going on at one time. 
the bottom dropped out on financing and he had a very, he had a heck of a time and had to get really creative with how he's going to refinance them. Can you share, I think your 108 unit build, 118 unit building, how you guys are currently planning on refinancing that thing with, you're still getting rents coming in, but a lot of lenders at this time have sort of halted giving out loans. Has that been your experience? So no, we, we're refinancing into agency debt. So your Fannie and Freddie products, while their their terms have changed, they're still lending, and you can still get mid 75 percent LTV. They're coming, making you come in with an extra reserves. So now, between nine and twelve months of mortgage payments, you have to have on hand at closing that they hold in escrow basically for you. And so we already had that. So that doesn't really affect us too much. We that's how we underwrite. And we I think we talked about that two months ago when we were recording. So it didn't affect us too much, but in the refinance, it, it, so you just have to have a little bit of extra reserves on the refinance, but you can still get great product. I think float rates are still all time lows on Fannie Freddie. So you still, it's a great time to refinance um, even with that extra reserves. Well, I, if, I, if I could add a couple of points, you know, that's not a small thing. If you are used to going into a closing with two months of, interest reserves, and now all of a sudden you have to have nine or 12, it's not a small thing. On a $4 million, $6 million raise for an acquisition, you could be $700,000 off, which will drastically change your projections on returns, which is why you know, deals yep. fell out in escrow, fell out of escrow that fell out of escrow. Now, it doesn't have an impact on us because I am a neurotic Jew afraid of everything and I want reserves and we've always had nine months of reserves and that's just how it is and I won't close close a deal without it. So nothing has had to change in our underwriting to accommodate this. So for the deal you guys currently have on the market, what's the plan with that? Sam, you want to take it? Yep. So we, uh, that is still on the market, but we are moving forward with a refinance on that one. Uh, I'm going to put long-term debt on it. And actually, our, our debt service will go down quite a bit. We'll get have an extra ten thousand dollars a month in cash flow. It looks like from refinancing. That's cool. So, I, and I mean, so either way, it's a win-win. So, so it's a it's a which which actually brings us to a very interesting conversation about exit plans. Like how in every deal, the way you need to underwrite, and so you have option A, option B, option C, option D. So typically, we would wait we would either sell it as a proven value add, which is what we try to do. We put it on the market to show them, listen, we started with $58,000 of revenue. Now we're at $85,000 of revenue with half of the units renovated. Do you want to buy this thing and finish the project? We've proven it to you. All you got to do is finish it, take it and finish it. So we're going to sell it to you for less than we would if it was fully complete because we didn't complete it. So we're going to split the profits with you. So that was the business kind of plan to try to exit early. But if you don't exit early, you finish it and you sell it as a turnkey. And we didn't didn't underwrite that early exit. That was very opportunistic. The market was hot. People really wanted a product. And we said, sure, if you're willing to pay still under a four and a half cap for our revenue, take it. Yeah. So how is that? How has that changed, Sam, since COVID? I mean, what, what do you expect? I should, I mean, put on your crystal ball. Well, like we talked about earlier, everybody's just so far apart, right? Yeah. Do you think it's just probably shot at this point? Or I, so I think when so a lot of people it? are just waiting for the good news, right? It's a little bit less uncertainty out there. 
Um, mm, yeah. So I think what May numbers, a lot of people are waiting on May numbers and we just started getting them right before the weekend. I think a couple of weeks from now, you could, if, if this keeps continuing and you still get good news on the pandemic side, I think you could still see an exit. So, so we still might have a chance of selling before we do the refinance. But once we have yeah. April numbers here in about a week, we're going to move forward with the refinance. If, it, if we sell it before then, that's fine. But the kind of debt we're putting onto it, there's no big large prepayment penalty. So I can still sell it a year from now um, and get the exit. It's not like I need to hold on to it for a long time now, even though we're refinancing it. So literally, it's just option A, option B, option C. Right now, this money is might as well be free. I mean, it's 3.2%. Last quote I saw was 3.2% from Freddie Mac. I mean, it might as well be zero. Yeah. All right. I want to summarize everything we just talked about in the last 45 minutes and a couple of quick points. And then I'm going to ask you guys your final advice for people right now that are listening. But first thing, number one, rents seem to be fine. That's good. I mean, I'm seeing the same thing. David's seeing the same thing. Rents seem to be fine. Second point is when you have, and this is kind of like summarize everything else we said, when you buy a good deal and when you have adequate reserves, you can do what you guys are doing, which is weather storms because you have the reserves you had a good deal going into it. You had a plan and you're still working the plan. And so like this applies to anybody, whether you're buying a first house, a hundred unit or anything in between is underwrite deals. Well, be conservative and have reserves and you're going to be fine. A good summary of that, uh, of why you guys are doing okay through yep, all this. Exactly. That's exactly it. We can throw in cap rates can be misleading. They're a metric oh, that you, you yep. can't necessarily lean on. I like to look at them like the a 40 yard dash time of a player that you're looking to bring into the NFL. It's a good starting point. Oh, that person's fast. Let's, let's look at this one, yeah. but you would never draft a player just because they have the best 40 yard dash time. It's a good analogy, right? Thank you for that. That's good. And there's a hack that can be found. If you use class A principles in class C and B properties, that might be a good way to sum it up. It doesn't have yeah. to be class A money that you're throwing at it, but if you can make your property the class A of its area, you may attract the cream of the crop people, give yourself an easier revenue stream to manufacture as well as a higher revenue stream when everybody else is kind of marching to the same drum. That's another thing that we talked about. And the whole, well, what if this happens? What if there's a black swan event? I don't want to own real estate. Like you mentioned, Brandon, then you just keep collecting rent and you refinance and you make money that way or you run your property better. And at a certain point, you can get out of it. And so there's a lot of similarities between this story and Josiah's that we did last week where the worst case scenario in some cases happened, or at least we were prepared for it. And it wasn't that bad. Rents actually didn't stop coming in. Now, if we had a shelter in place for another seven months in a row, I'm sure this would be a different story. But as Ben pointed out, the government, while, you know, they like they cut us open and we started to bleed, they then came in and gave us a blood transfusion more or less at the same time. So people were getting money. There's a stimulus package that was prevented. It's not as good as if we kept working, but it's certainly a lot better than we bled out in three months and the entire economy went into a depression because of it. That that isn't what happened. And so for the people that were running around screaming, the sky's falling, keep this in mind the next time that there's a big problem. Don't let your fears get ahead of the facts. Okay, I think that this could happen. So I'm going to assume it's going to happen and stick to the fundamentals. You have strong reserves. You're in a really good market. You understand what you're doing. You don't have to get in and get out in five years where you have one way to hit the bullseye. And if you miss it, you're going to lose money. And real estate is freaking awesome. You know, people who bought stocks can't really say the same thing as us talking on this podcast. Think about how much control we have. 
I mean, we've been talking about doing X, Y, and Z and being proactive, and that gives us control, so much control to respond to even a black swan event such as this. So Sam, final point from you then, what would you leave people with? I had two points. So reserves and cash flow, they allow you to exit when you want to exit, not when the market mm. tells you how to exit. I'd always go in with a lot of extra reserves, um, if you, especially if you're low on cash flow at the beginning. And then the second point, and it, it basically approves what you just said, the, one, the properties that we've had most renovations completed, so we're over 50% of the property renovated, had the highest collections the last two months. And even if they were in a worse location, yeah. and we're not surprised by that at all. That's what we, that was our assumption going in and it just was validated over the last two months. All right. Good deal, guys. Well, uh, we don't need to do the famous four or five round or any of that because we already did it. People can listen back if for some reason they skipped that part. But with that, we'll just uh, get out of here. David Green, you want to close up shop? Yeah, thank you guys very much for coming on. Sam, I feel like you probably could have made your points a lot quicker and you just droned on and on and on the entire episode. Hopefully we can <laughs> edit you down a little bit because you're, I mean, the ball hog of this podcast for sure. But, you know, thank you for coming as it is. Hey, hey and, guys, uh, they're, they're talk- he's talking to me. You, you guys listening, this is like a, a very thinly veiled. And yet you still took the mic yeah. from him. And yet yes, that's, that's the hilarious part of it. That's, what, that's the hilarious part of it. He's still right in my trap there, Ben. All right, guys, thank you very much. I, it's not always fun coming on to talk about when things go wrong. And I appreciate you doing that. And we, we got a lot of very, very good and interesting stuff out of this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.